0: Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the Big Dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined today with Steve. Uh, Please call me Steve the Vampire Slayer.
1: Steve, <laughs> the Vampire Slayer.
0: Yeah. And also joining us again, the lovely and handsome Review Dude Josh.
2: Ha ha, you said the magic word.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: I was not expecting that. Thank you. <laughs> no one ever expects it. We are kicking off the spooky season early this year. Normally, we wait till October to go into these horror-esque movies not necessarily always horror but some way halloween related of course every podcast does this in october but we're starting early and i think we're gonna end late i think we're gonna do more than we normally do in a given year we're gonna like keep that. it rolling yeah. yeah so that means we're gonna do thanks killing <laughs> thanks killing what is that
2: no that's the turkey film what tell me about it please I I just I have not made it past the fifteen
3: minute mark, Corey. What's What's the What's the horror one with the evil snowman? Uh, oh, Jack Frost. Yeah, there you go. We do that one for Christmas. I, I did that one on my channel, and thank God because I'm not actually going to watch that movie.
2: The only thing I can really remember is Shannon Elizabeth gets fucked to death.
3: I forgot she was in that, and I think there's another one that's also called Jack Frost, but it's with Michael Keaton, who's a dad that dies and comes back in a snowman.
2: Yes. Yeah, so imagine getting those two films mixed up in the 90s when you're you know, bringing a film home for your kid. <laughs>
1: right. Uh.
0: So we're here today to talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer,
3: colon, the movie. Yeah, the one that's not the TV show.
0: Yeah, it's actually just called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but that's also the name of the TV show. Now, this movie came out before the TV show. Several years. Several years before it, and we're going to kind of talk about that a little bit in a moment. But I want to take us back to July 31st, 1992, when this movie was released. Oh,
3: God, yes, please. Where's the time machine?
0: It's right over there. Steve, step inside. (laughs) Thank you. Let's go back. I'm going to cry. Josh, you'll take care of the podcast from here, right? (laughs) Yeah. You guys go on. Get out of here, you crazy bastards. (laughs) So I want to talk about movies that were potentially in theaters around the same time as Buffy the Vampire Slayer in 1992, Summer. We're going to do the trivia edition. So it's going to be Steve versus Josh. Oh, fuck. I'm going to give a clue about one of the movies that was in theaters at the same time. And if you know what movie it is, just shout it out. And if you get it right, you get a point. So the first movie that was potentially in theaters at the same time as Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Here's the clue. Robin Harris. Oh, uh, Bay Kids. Damn. (laughs) Yeah. Josh you got your work cut out for you Steve is good at this
3: we don't die we multiply I loved Robin Harris
1: wow
4: where are you guys we baby Bebe kids baby's kids
5: yeah we don't die we
2: multiply alright never in a million years would
0: I have picked that one out
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I really liked him it was real sad when he
0: died Steve what do you think of the movie baby's kids as a kid, I found
3: it really enjoyable just because I thought it was funny to watch the kids tearing up the park. As an adult, I'm not sure I have the same patience for it, but it was fun when I was like 10. You know?
0: No, it's funny to watch as an adult. I rewatched it kind of recently. Is it from the perspective of the guy yeah, of being the adult? That's kind of like, these I was goddamn thinking. motherfucking kids,
3: right? Because yeah, I, mean, I can imagine. Like, yeah, you're right. As I can imagine being the guy on the date with a woman you really like, but she's got these monstrous kids in tow, and like, what do you do? <laughs>
0: All right. Here's the second one, potentially in theaters at the same time as Buffy. The clue is Clancy Brown and Edward Furlong.
2: Oh, Pet Cemetery Two.
0: Nailed it, Josh. Pet Cemetery Two, the lost episode. This is it's true. The one episode that we did a podcast on that we fully recorded. This was me, Steve, and Alan before he died, <laughs> and we lost the file somehow. Like I still to this day don't yeah. know how that file disappeared from my computer and it's like not that the file itself was just missing but the like con- the, the subfolders that contain the bits of audio that comprise the audacity file right. were missing Weird. and like i did a search for every file type uh, with that file extension on my computer to see if i could recover it like in the temp directory in my whole computer i searched and i went through and i combed through every mp3 and I could not fucking find it.
3: If you ever get to the point where you're replacing this computer, I might be willing to pay to have that hard drive like forensically recovered just to see if it oh, pops oh,
0: hold, out. On, like, hold on, hold on, hold
1: <laughs> on. Not so fast, Steve. Yeah, exactly.
2: Corey, I've been meaning to tell you I was there that night. When you guys left the room, I came in like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, and I erased Alan's file.
3: Hanging from the ceiling.
0: Ugh. All right. Next clue. Aya. Oh, fucking. Oh, God. Kickback. God damn it. Josh, you're close.
2: Oh, just the original. The original. The original what? Three ninjas. (laughs) Aya.
3: There we go. Fuck! I was thinking about why oh, was I thinking about what's the, now I can't even remember the name of it, the Jamaican bobsled movie. Disney That's movie. called Cool Running. Cool Running. There you go. Thank you. I don't know why I couldn't think of that. It's not even the right movie, but I couldn't think of the name.
0: Three Ninjas classic film franchise. Me and Josh love to talk about it. Steve, one of these days you should join me and Josh. We like to pitch Three Ninjas sequel ideas, and I, I, we'd love to have you on. My for that. Three
3: Ninjas sequel idea is that Tum Tum's forty years old and weighs four hundred pounds.
0: I
2: pitched a Three Ninjas Surf Ninjas Crossover film Oh that's a good
3: one There should have been A Three Ninjas Ninja Turtles Crossover film Anyway Absolutely
2: (laughs) I wanted Steven Seagal As the villain
0: (laughs) He's always a villain Alright Next clue Madonna And Lori Petty Madonna And Lori
3: Petty Oh uh Wait Was Lori Petty And Dick Tracy It's not Dick Tracy Madonna and was She She wasn't in. Was Madonna and Tank Girl? No, that's not the right year. What the fuck were they both in together? Oh, uh, a League of Their Own. That one took me a minute.
0: Damn, you got it. A League of Their Own. Uh, one of my favorite movies. It's a good movie of that year. Yeah. Probably.
2: It was not the movie I was thinking of. Uh,
0: one of my favorite early '90s movies. I absolutely love it. You know, there's a series of a League of Their Own that's on Amazon right now. I haven't started it yet, but I'm going to start it soon. I'll let yeah. you guys know. Alright, next clue Tim Burton Edward Scissorhands
3: Negative
2: Batman Returns
3: Boom Oh, damn it, I was off by two years Josh is actually in the lead Yeah, yeah, that was a bad call on me I was guessing Scissorhands
0: And we did a podcast on that one Great movie, not said Next clue Rick Moranis Honey, I Shrunk the Kids Very close ghost
3: no ghostbusters 2? nope no you were closer the first time um, honey i oh, blew, honey, up, I the blew baby. up the kid
0: yeah <laughs> yeah you know for a long time i considered that one of the worst movies i'd ever seen
3: yeah it's not a good one the original
0: one's much much better well the original one really thrives in it's like props you know yeah. and like situational like occurrences like what if Right. you're very tiny, and you meet an insect. Right. Like, that's a good thought, I right? like that, like, yeah. That's a good premise. It's one of the
3: best parts with the, was it an ant or a, a bee? One or the it's other. It was an ant, yeah, it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love that part.
0: Also, like, what if you find a giant cookie? Like, wouldn't this yeah. be fun for a kid, right? Like, yeah. Or, I guess it's just a regular size cookie, but you're tiny.
3: I think is that kind of adventure that movie, at least for me, really stood the test of time. I can sit down and watch it now, it's like I'm ten years old again. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's great. Like, the, the miniatures, I mean, they're not miniatures, they're What's, what's the opposite of a miniature? Oh, yeah. We're, it's like scale giant. Yeah. Yeah. It's so great. And all they have to do really for the most part of the movie is traverse across their lawn.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's brilliant. You're right. The whole movie is basically just trying to get back to the house from the other side of the backyard.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It's pretty fucking
2: cool. Maybe it's just my experience, but like I feel like this uh, Honey I Blew Up the Baby is the movie they like tried to bury or hide or maybe it's just the the, <laughs> the sequel time forgot. It's the one that got very rarely played on TV. I think I saw it maybe once, maybe twice.
3: Well, it's one of several films that reinforces the concept that just because a first one was a good idea doesn't mean that sequels are merited in any way whatsoever. Like, one can be enough.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) All right, last clue. You guys are all tied up, so the winner of this takes it all. Gabriel Byrne and Kim Basinger.
3: Gabriel Byrne and Kim Basinger. 92. (sighs) Sliver?
0: No? No? Next clue, Brad Pitt. Oh, Cool World. Cool World is it, sir? I
3: fucking love that movie. Fuck.
2: God damn it! I forget that movie exists.
3: Yeah, yeah that, I actually really do like that movie. I mean, I, it's yeah.
0: I thought Josh would get that one.
2: <laughs> right? I dude, that's the that's the question I should have gotten, but I, like I seen Cool World like once or twice, and I'm like. This this That's is enough. this is not good.
3: <laughs> it's not but I don't know. I I can't not like it. It's it's like it's it's bad in a way that I like enough to want to watch it. The uh, what's the one with uh, Monkey Bone? Monkey Bones even worse.
0: Yeah. I would rather watch Monkey Bone. Cool World has like weird memories for me yeah. because it like made me horny.
3: Yeah, I mean it's one of those ones that like
0: you're seven; and it's very conflicting and like. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, you watch cartoons a lot, so you see this movie <laughs> Cool World, and you're
2: like. You don't know why you want to fuck a cartoon now, but you do.
3: <laughs> no! Well, it's like when the new challenge, Street Fighter The New Challengers came out, and Cammy's wearing a one piece bathing suit, and if you leave both characters standing there, it's just her bouncing up and down, and like, you're fucking nine years old, <laughs> and there's no <laughs> internet yet. It, you know, that, it's kind of porny. <laughs> like.
0: <laughs> Oh boy. Yeah. yeah, I can I can go on and on. We worked with what we had.
3: Yeah, I know absolutely.
0: <laughs> it just I just get more pathetic as the conversation <laughs> goes along. So, <laughs> I'll give you guys a, a little taste of uh some sick reality here. Now, the listeners might shut the podcast off after I reveal this information. <laughs> the first porn site I ever went to was a site called cartoonporn.com. You pervert. The reason I went to it is because internet was still pretty new, and we yeah. had AOL, and like I remember people talking about porn, but I didn't really know what it was. Uh-huh. I knew like of like porno mag, so I was like, "Is it like pictures?" Yeah, you know? I didn't really know like what the concept of porn fully was. It didn't really like click in my mind. Yeah, so someone at school made this joke about, "Oh, I went on cartoonporn.com," <laughs> and like I was like. Hmm, cartoon. Maybe I can check out that. Because I didn't know like what sites to go to. You remember right. back in the early days of the internet, oh, you didn't God. know the web address. Like. No,
3: and there was hardly anything there, and most pages were just like a flash animation on a on a background. Right, and search
0: yeah. uh, search engines were like basically non-existent. Oh yeah,
3: Google didn't even exist until what ninety nine two thousand. Right, so I'm like, what it was? It was web crawler. I used to get on web crawler. Hmm. Like, fuck, dude.
0: So I went to that site, and it was, like, mostly just ads, I think. Like, I don't yeah. think there was any real content. Sex.com
3: for years was just a page full of ads to other porn sites.
0: and It, it was, was one of those. And, like, none of them really got me content. It was just, like, always a link to a yeah. link to a link. And it was all... Yeah, <laughs> it was we'll, like the national treasure of cartoon yeah. porn. Trying to get your fix...
3: Well, and it was also, I think partly because it was also new, no one was doing the free stuff yet. You had to pay for everything. Yeah. And then it got so competitive, they just, everyone was dumping porn on the internet. You fast forward 10 years and it's like, why would I ever pay for porn? Everything I could possibly want is free. Exactly.
2: Right? Like. So with that confession query, I think you're safe now, but. 10 years from now, you're probably going to get canceled. Right? Cartoon rights, it's going to be a whole internet movement like 10 years from now. You don't understand it yet. Oh, I can't get canceled
0: uh, if no one listens to this podcast. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what
3: they would definitely object to because it's what I liked when I was 10 or 11. Was It was like the original version of deepfakes when Photoshop was new and they'd take like like, Sarah Michelle Geller or Christy Swanson or Alyssa Milano's face, and they'd Photoshop onto some other woman's body so it would look like you were looking at a nude picture of her. And people in the AOL chat rooms for grown-ups would be like, you know, I'll trade you three Alyssa Milanos for two Alicia Silverstones, but none of them were actually them.
2: Yeah. You know, like... There's ever a day where deviant art doesn't exist. I don't, I don't want to <laughs> exist in that world. I don't want to
3: live on this planet anymore. <laughs> Although Christy Swanson did Playboy. That was incredible
0: anyway Playboy's always been a letdown for me Steve and this is not the conversation I expected us to have
3: No, the well the, I mean it was for me too when I got older but in 92 when I was 10 and the internet was as we were just describing Playboy was was fine for me
0: Where'd you right. get it? From your dad? <laughs> where'd, you, where'd you get
3: it? Who gave it to you? I didn't even need to. My dad used to take me to the barber with him, and the barber had a rack full of them sitting there. My dad didn't care. I'd be eight, nine years old, and I look at the Playboy and my father's like, fine, don't tell your mother. <laughs> you know, so yeah. Who taught you this?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so I wanna to go I wanna shift the conversation a little bit and kinda talk about Buffy the Vampire related media. So, as we know, Joss Whedon is a person that has been deeply involved in Buffy. I thought you were
2: going to say Joss Whedon is a person that exists.
0: Right? He was the writer of this movie. He's listed as the writer, at least. He also was, I'm pretty sure, the showrunner of the long-running series with Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But, Josh, I think you and I have a different appreciation for Joss Whedon. Now, we're not alone in the world to say that. Firefly is one of the best shows ever made, right?
2: It's one of those rare shows where there's not a bad episode
0: of Firefly.
5: Well, shiny.
0: I totally agree. It it was very short-lived, though. And the fandom that developed from it, like the cult fandom that started to appear after the show was cancelled, like, it, it blows my mind. It has a pretty fucking deep fandom. Josh, why don't you tell me about I don't know, one of your favorite Firefly episodes.
2: So I'm going to start off with an honorable mention, the episode The Message. You guys, you
0: guys familiar with this one? I don't think Steve has much familiarity with Firefly. I,
3: I watched it first run and lost interest in it afterward, if I'm being
0: honest. I don't really remember most of those episodes. I remember it, though. That's where their war buddy gets, like, shipped to the crew of Serenity, right?
2: Yes and he's like
0: smuggling he's smuggling something inside of his body. He's smuggling like special organs that were like Yes, organs like crafted in a lab that have uh, unique properties and the only way to keep or the only way to to get them from point A to B is to Put them inside of a person, and he's posing as a corpse.
3: Okay, I don't mean this is a knock. It's basically, it's very similar to the the storyline for Johnny Mnemonic, whereas the whole thing is he transports sensitive shit in, the, in his head.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's not really about like that aspect of the episode. It's about like his interaction with the crew because he oh, knows them, and I it's see. about who's chasing them down. Ah. Uh-huh. So that's, that's really just like the plot device of the episode. I
3: kind of remember this one.
2: Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, but the funeral, the actual funeral scene at the end of that episode, the piece of music, at that point, they the showrunners knew they were getting canceled. So the piece of music was meant to lament the end of the show and kind of reflect that. And it's it's one of the best pieces of music in the entire show. Tell my folks I wanted to do right by them and that I'm at peace and all.
5: When you can't run anymore,
2: you crawl. When you can't do that, well... Yeah, you know rest. But my favorite episode is Out of Gas. Oh, yeah, dude, that's a good one. Oh, my God. See, the origins of the crew come together, splice together... As, like, flashbacks, uh, Mal tries to, like, get this piece and gets the... Sh- like, the ship is adrift in space, and Mal's struggling to get this piece and get this the ship running. You don't know where the crew is.
0: Yeah, well, basically, he's trying to put the ship back together as he's slowly running out of air. It is a beautifully paced episode. Oh, it's great. Like, the thing about Firefly that's really cool about it is that you get the full story like, the backstory of how everyone kind of came together, like, later in the series. Like, it's not all in episode one. Like, it kind of starts out, this crew is all together, and then later on as you go, especially with this episode, you learn their origins and, like, how they met and, like, why they're doing what they're doing. It's it's great.
3: I tend to prefer it that way anyway.
2: For a show that got canceled in season one, it feels very satisfying. Obviously, they would have explored more plot lines in season two, but at least for the characters and stuff like that,
0: they knocked it out of the park for uh, 14 episodes. I just want to say that when I show people Firefly, and I have many times in my life, I've
5: put it on the DVD
0: and said, check out this show. I always start with a very specific episode, and it's not the pilot episode of the series. I always start with the train job. I think it's the perfect introduction to the show. It's them actually doing a heist and things go wrong and, Thinking on their feet, and each person uses their own unique set of skills to kind of get through this sticky situation that they find themselves in. The train job is a perfect jumping-off point. You get everything about what the show is from that episode. They
2: have a like a heel turn, like a what's the word I'm phrase I'm looking for? A double cross. It's like for the greater good, you know what I mean? Because they like they feel like shit because they took medical supplies from people that actually need it. And they decide to deliver them back. So you get that the crew has a heart. You know what I mean? They're not just criminals that want money. Then why'd they take it in the first place? <laughs> so they take a job
3: to steal But they're some such crates. good people. Why'd they take the money? <laughs> they're not given all the details. For the job. I just, I I don't mean to even pick on the show. I just, I don't really like episodes. It's not the only show. I just don't like episodes that are formatted that way. It's like they, suddenly these people have so much heart. It's like, well, then you shouldn't have done it in the first place. The fact that somebody offered you money is not a great, like, I love it when they grow a conscience after they did something terrible. Like
2: They kind of botched the end of the heist where like Mal and another crewmate are like Walked into uh, the train with a bunch of people. And at that point, they kind of really get the uh, grasp of, the of oh, these people are sick. Because they're surrounded by them for a few hours at that point.
3: I guess that's better. At least it's not as bad. Yeah,
0: no, it plays out pretty good. A lot of the things they do are like stealing from the government, basically. And they're basically in a tyrannical fascist government. So they don't feel too bad about doing that. Right. But they found themselves in a situation where they're taking something that's actually... Like medicine, and they right. didn't realize that, so they kind of just thought they were taking gold or whatever from the government. It's like, who cares? Fuck them. They're oppressive.
3: All right. Well, you know what? In that case, I'll I'll give them a little more credit. I, I I still don't love that particular story arc, but it's not as bad as I initially thought. At least at least to start off, they wrote it so that they didn't.
2: It's very Star Wars esque, right? The yeah. the alliance is like this big evil empire and. Well, like, yeah, like, it's a crew full of Han solos. Cause I, and I, I'm not even really necessarily thinking
3: of anything specific examples and I'm not necessarily mean this at the show. I just hate those cliche ones where it's like, here's a character who's been doing shitty things their entire life and they take a job to do another shitty thing. And then halfway through, they suddenly start feeling bad about it. It's like, I don't, why you didn't feel bad about it doing it a thousand times before. <laughs> it's so weird that that's a story arc for people, but whatever.
0: Steve. I know you're not the biggest Firefly fan, obviously, but are you a fan of any of Joss Whedon's ventures? In
3: all seriousness, despite talking a little shit right now about that episode, I didn't dislike Firefly. I like the idea of a sci-fi western. I have a feeling this is one of those instances where we're just going to be on opposite sides in terms of the show. But I always felt that Whedon aped that idea a little bit from Cowboy Bebop.
2: It is very Cowboy Bebop. I'll give you that. And I like Bebop better. Do you like uh, Serenity?
3: I Yeah, I like Serenity too. And that's another thing I will also say that I admit is that I think that one of the reasons I don't love Firefly more and that it didn't stick with me more is that I felt like it was a good concept that never got a chance to fully develop. And maybe if it had been on... That's just my take. I don't necessarily expect everyone feels the same. But maybe if it had been on another two or three seasons... It would have matured to a point that I was more. I was into it.
2: actually introduced to the the series through Serenity. I oh, loved Serenity so much, and then I was like, "Oh, oh my god! There's there's a show with like more adventures with these characters," and I, I checked right. it out, and I fucking loved it.
3: As far as Whedon's other work, I, I mean, yeah, yes, and no. It's really, really. Back and forth for me. I mean, he he co-wrote the original Toy Story, which I think is one of the greatest things that's ever been put together. But his other work on his own is really fucking mixed. I mean, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel TV shows, both of which I fucking despise.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay, Um, here it is. This is what I'm looking to find
3: out. I hate those shows passionately. There's actually someone who I used to be friends with who I stopped being friends with partly because we had such a huge argument about those two shows.
2: Tell me how you really feel, Steve. D- D- oh God, I fucking hate the two of
3: those shows. He also did dollhouse with Eliza Dushku. I think that's her name. Eliza Dushku. And that show was terrible, just outright terrible. But you know, he also contributed to the movie speed, which is fun. He contributed to the movie twister, which is fun.
2: He contributed a little bit to the original X-Men, right? Yeah. I mean, that's another
3: one for me that like, I'm, I think it's cool that he did it and, I know there are things about Singer's first X Men that some people really like, but that the X Men films just so consistently have missed the mark for me. Really? The first one's not the worst one, but
2: first one's just a product of its time.
3: Yeah, that's partly it. Also, you know, so I,
0: I, we didn't I, produce Cabin in the Woods. I never really understood. Steve, is that one you like or not, dislike?
3: Not particularly. I don't hate it, but I, I'm not into it. Okay. Yeah.
2: Oh, I'm super into it. He also
3: has one of my big hold against for him. He wrote most or all of the original screenplay for Alien Resurrection, which is just really bad. And my understanding is that the monster at the end was his idea, which is fucking terrible. You mean brilliant. Right? But he also wrote part of or all of the original draft for Titan AE, which is another one of my f- most favorite animated things ever. So I don't know. I like some of what he's done. The the Marvel stuff I feel kind of lukewarm about. I, I I have a feeling you feel more strongly one way or the other, which is fine. But like, m- most of the Marvel stuff on film and TV, I've I've been pretty lukewarm about.
2: I want to say I read an interview with Kevin Feige or something like that, or somebody at Marvel, and they said basically Serenity is what landed him the the job of the Avengers.
3: It doesn't surprise me. And Buffy, whether or not I like it, was a very successful venture for the network. So
2: so it's weird that me and you, uh, I, I'm just not familiar with the show at all, but fans of not the show, but fans of the movie. That's funny. There's so much
3: different from each other. And I will fully admit before we even get into the meat of it, the movie's not perfect and it, it, it has rough edges and it, it could have been better.
2: So fans of the show, if you're listening, you should probably just tune out. Yeah, I mean,
3: I'm going to talk a lot of shit about how much I dislike that show. Like, a lot of shit. I really dislike that show. And and Whedon, which we'll get to in a minute, Whedon walked off this project because what he wanted was more like the show, and they wouldn't do it. But, yeah.
0: Well, maybe we should talk about that, Steve. (laughs) Could you tell me, sir, how the hell was this movie made? So
3: there's not a whole lot of detail out there. I, Whedon, like we said, has been involved in a bunch of other stuff. He started his career in TV. He was a staff writer for Roseanne and for the show Parenthood, the original version of it years ago. The um, show that
0: came after the movie.
3: Yeah, the after the Steve Martin movie.
0: And then there was another movie and another show, I
1: think.
3: Yes, yeah, there's, they've, they've done it again more recently. I don't know exactly how they sequenced out. I know that Whedon wrote two or three or four film screenplays roughly around the same time during the late 80s and early 90s and that this was one of them. I don't know if it was really the first one he wrote, but it is the first one he successfully sold. He managed to get interest from um, a woman named Fran Rubel kazooie I don't know a whole lot about her. She's an American film director and producer. She, in 1988, made a film called Tokyo Pop, which which was... um, about a young woman trying to make sense of youth culture in Japan. This woman's husband is, is a, a producer. Somehow, this woman and her husband got a hold of Whedon's script for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And they managed to sell the film in 91 to uh, Sand Dollar uh, Pictures, which was Dolly Parton's company. And the, the production kind of went forward from there. They got 20th Century Fox involved to back the production and handle distribution. And the production got started from there. There was apparently not a whole lot of time spent casting. They had a few other ideas for people who might be in the movie. Uh, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, and Carrie Hughes were, were considered for parts. They actually originally apparently wanted Alyssa Milano to play Buffy. And they originally wrote Paul Rubin's part for a woman who who backed out of the film. But uh, they got the cast together pretty quickly and started production during 91. When Wheaton wrote the film, he he thought that it was going to be a pretty dark kind of gothic affair. And in isolation by itself, I could see that potentially being cool. He, he wanted the Buffy character to be this really hardened... Like Sarah Connor type, frankly, um, who would start off being this sort of airhead cheerleader and then who would realize as time went on how serious what she had to do was. He, He envisioned the movie being kind of violent. He included a part in the original script where Buffy intentionally burns down a school auditorium knowing that dozens of students are still in it because it's the only way for her to kill several of the vampires which is an element that they apparently integrated into the show. They never show it, but Sarah Michelle Geller's version of Buffy apparently references having burned down a school building with people in it at some point during the show. And uh, the producers at 20th Century Fox and Fran Kazooie and her husband didn't love it. They, they thought that it was too cheesy. They didn't think that people would buy the idea of a 17-year-old girl being this serious vampire hunter. They thought that it would be better if they played the whole thing tongue-in-cheek and made it a really ridiculous thing about really kind of a valley girl cheerleader who gets commissioned unwillingly to be a vampire hunter, even though she's she sort of doesn't care.
2: The tongue-in-cheek aspect works for me. Exactly.
3: I think it's better that way. Like, Not that the gothic version couldn't have been good, but that that's part of why I like this better than the show. The show took itself way too seriously and didn't have the writing or the production value to back up the tone. Doing it this way made it possible for the movie to be goofy without the goofiness being a bad thing. It's supposed to be goofy. And some of the dialogue in it is great, and I think they did a really nice job of, of casting. It's rough around the edges, and we'll get to the ratings later, but the production kept going in that direction and they cast Donald Sutherland and apparently Sutherland and Whedon didn't like each other very much and there were no like big blowout fights but they were just irritating each other.
2: My one fact is I know Sutherland was embarrassed by this film right that he was working on this right?
3: Yeah I think it I think one of the reasons they went the way they did was because of him. He signed on for whatever reason and then wasn't happy with it and I think that pitching him on the idea that it was supposed to be a spoof made him more comfortable with the part and i also think that you're right in the sense that that's part of why there was friction between he and whedon because i don't think he was quiet about telling whedon that he didn't think whedon's vision was functional like i don't think this would work
2: i want to say i read on imdb that and imdb you know could be anything um... yeah it's the wild west but he wasn't even telling his friends the name of the film that he was working on he was so embarrassed <laughs> this is the man that
0: was in moonfall
3: yeah, it he's had such a strange career some really amazing stuff and some really bad it goes back to our our banter discussion about directors even among really good act- actors there's some really strange resume choices and and this is i mean things devolved in a really interesting way here that i can't make sense of because Whedon eventually got so fed up, he was like, fine, you know what, you guys do whatever you want with it, I'm gone. He left. He just walked off the picture completely. And Fran Kazooie and her husband were one of the were two of the people pushing to make the movie this kind of spoof, and they were partly inspired by the fact that they had been involved with helping Trey Parker and Matt Stone secure a distribution deal for South Park in Japan. So they were kind of in this real spoofy humor mood. But then... Years later, even after all the badness, Whedon got Fran Kazooie and her husband involved again on the series, which he did the way he wanted to do. And there have been rumors persisting since the series went off the air that Fran Kazooie and her husband are trying to reboot it again. So it, it's, it's a real strange set of relationships. But yeah, uh, Whedon didn't, didn't like it. In any case, they only spent $7 bucks making the movie. It made $17 million at the box office it actually ended up doing a lot better on home video. The movie admittedly did not review well, but I, I, I contend that part of the reason it didn't review well is that a lot of the people reviewing it took it too seriously and didn't review it as, as a, as a spoof film.
2: Between the film and the show, wasn't there a time period where Whedon was writing a uh, Buffy comics?
3: Yeah. So he, he decided after this to, because he didn't know that the show was going to happen. To plug the story in with a series of comics,
2: he retained rights to the character.
3: Yeah, I don't, I don't understand how that worked. I guess Sand Dollar and Twentieth Century Fox really only bought the rights to the story in so much as like this film is contained, and and Whedon, Whedon got to walk with the rest of it because he was able to then sell it again to, to WBTV or CW, whatever name they were operating under at the time, to to do the series. Yeah, and it, so he did the comic, and they, they uh, funnily enough, we talked about this when we did Robocop 2. Frank Miller did basically the same thing with Robocop 2. After they chopped up his script, he got so mad he partnered with someone else years later and wrote out his version of it as a, as a comic.
2: He spent years doing lines of nuke. <laughs> <laughs>
3: it wouldn't surprise me, and spreading conspiracy theories about 9 11. I like his work, but he's nuts.
2: Oh, is he one of those guys? A He's little an actual bit, yeah. crazy person. He
3: is, and I like a lot of his work, but he is—he is a mental person.
2: No one's gonna top Alan Moore. That's a
3: crazy person. No, well, yeah, but I love his work too, Jesus. But anyway, the larger point is, like, I can understand people not liking this movie, but it's one of those movies that's gained a, a much larger degree of support in the years since it came out on home video. If you if you troll Google for reviews. It's a real interesting mix of period reviews that are mostly kind of lukewarm and much more recent reviews from people saying, hey, this is actually a cult classic that went totally underappreciated in its time.
2: You said uh, before Paul Rubens, there was a brief period they wanted to cast uh, Captain Kangaroo. (laughs) And then they said, no, no, let's go in a different direction.
3: So, yeah, it it ended up it ended up working for them. It's also they... uh, you know, they they tried their best to get some people who were relevant at the time, including Luke Perry. They had to, they had to compress the shooting schedule down to five weeks to uh, squeeze him in. Also a little interesting in, in terms of, of casting real quick. This was Hilary Swank's uh, movie debut uh, as one of Buffy's friends. Uh, there's a very, very brief moment where Thomas Jane is in the movie. It's his first appearance in a major picture. There's also a moment during the basketball game where Ben Affleck appears at the end. It's his first appearance in a real movie. Ricky Lake is... That is Ricky Lake. It is Ricky Lake. The waitress. Ricky Lake is the waitress. She's in it for a moment. I think a lot of people, some of our younger listeners might not know who she was, but look her up. She really was very relevant. And then, funnily enough, Seth Green was cast in the movie and they shot sequences with him as one of the vampires. And they ended up trimming out Everything he was in, except one moment where you can see the back of his head. So it's funny he tells people that he was cut from the movie, but technically you can see the back of his head for for a moment. This feels like a movie
2: Seth Green would be involved in.
3: It does. It does. And you know, it's no
2: Idle Hands though. No. (laughs) Oh, I fucking love Idle Hands, man. That that
3: – we'll get into it. But that's one of my few criticisms. I think if they'd taken advantage of some of the better dialogue and some of the people they had on set and, and spent a little while longer developing it, it would have been better. I still like the movie, but yeah. But uh but yeah, and then that's kind of – that was kind of it. And he – Whedon went on a few years later to do the comic and then he pitched the TV show and then the TV show spun off into Angel. And uh since then there have been persistent conversations about reboots.
2: I've heard there's like a love hate relationship Whedon has with Buffy because like I want to say fans really were into like the angel character, but he was like, no, he's a villain, and he fucking hated that aspect, so he kept writing Angel doing bad shit. And I I don't really know all this shit, but uh, fans (laughs) still ate it up, and eventually he like warmed up to the character and gave him a a spinoff. So Angel's a man.
3: Yes. Hmm. It's David Boreanaz. It's Bones. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Bones was Angel. Actually, I guess the doctor's Bones. show. he's
2: am, not Bones. But but. Yeah,
3: it's what Zoe Deschanel's sister's name. I can't remember. But but yeah, was yeah pretty much uh, pretty much it. They've got Christy Swanson in here in this one to play the lead. Christy Swan, one of my one of my early formative crushes.
0: Yes, yeah, we the one we've heard about on so many podcasts before.
3: Yes, well, I'm not going to stop talking about it. Um, <laughs> she was
0: in Big Daddy, Steve. She was Vanessa.
3: She was in Big Daddy. She was also in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's a great part for her. And uh, first movie first role is in a Wes Craven movie called Deadly Friend, which is one of the ones everyone has rightly forgotten. Wes Craven's directed like 80 movies in about. I 12-
2: haven't forgotten.
3: Right? Well, Scream starts about 80 movies and like 10 of them are good.
2: By *Soul to take sucks. So uh, you can't (laughs) gloss over the powerhouse that is David Arquette. You know what? I, I will say I normally on a
3: lot of occasions, I find him really obnoxious. But there are two instances I can always think of off the top of my head where I think he was perfect. And it's this in the original Scream.
2: Again, I, I, I want to say I read a quote somewhere along the lines about Courtney Cox in context to uh, the divorce or whatever. She's just like, he's so obnoxious. Yeah. And you <laughs> believe that statement.
3: I, oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I didn't need to be married to him to tell you that. I could have told Courtney Cox that three months before the marriage. I don't know what, what she was doing. She
2: really didn't believe in his wrestling career, I'm assuming. <laughs>
3: right. It was like when Carmen Electra married Dennis Rodman. You know, like, and then
2: Dennis Rodman married himself.
3: Yes, Dennis Rodman at least at one point had a yacht named Sexual Chocolate, which I think was pretty funny.
2: Did Dennis Rodman have the World Heavyweight
0: Champion belt? Yes or no? Because <laughs> Arquette did. He was part of the NWO. Actually, he was in WCW. So
3: I believe in Claymation form. He was also on Celebrity Deathmatch. Nice.
2: <laughs> I forgot Rodman individually went into wrestling. Oh my god! Core memories unlocked.
3: That guy could have had another five years at the top tier of the NBA and look what he ended up doing.
2: I mean, by the end of the WCW though, like half the fucking roster was in the NWO of some sort.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, the introduction of the Wolf Pack was like super cool, like an adversarial New World Order, like something for them to actually fight against because they never really had like a solid group to go against. They had more wrestlers
2: in the NWO that
0: weren't. Well, that that's the thing. So eventually, when the Wolfpack came out, then like everyone that was involved in WCW as a company joined the NWO or the Wolfpack, and it just became too much. I agree. The moment Disco Inferno got recruited, that was the end.
2: <laughs> oh my god. god, I forgot he existed. I remember. Oh, oh my god, do you got? Guys-
3: I did not watch wrestling at all growing up. So any questions about that, I do not remember. Okay.
2: Corey, do you remember the fucking Mortal Kombat Sub-Zero ripoff wrestler, Glacier? Yeah. That was a thing? Yeah. I forgot about that. Oh, God. It's just maskless Sub-Zero from Mortal Kombat 3. It's like the cringiest shit ever.
0: He does like kung fu karate moves and shit. It was like at the height of Mortal Kombat in the mid-90s. The thing is, though, some of the the most famous wrestlers are ripoffs of other things. There's a tag team that was a really great tag team in WWF called the Road Warriors. And they were just like Mad Max post-apocalyptic yeah. guys wearing like shoulder pads and makeup.
3: I remember seeing the toys or something of them. Absolutely.
2: Mosh and Thrasher were more than Mad Max
0: ripoffs. <laughs> you know their names, that's awesome. <laughs> but there was also Sting, who was the Crow guy. Him I remember. Oh, he yeah. was just the Jesus Crow.
3: Christ. He was. Yeah. You're <laughs> right. He was well, I he, to me, and I don't know because I didn't really watch, but he always looked like a Somebody took Gene Simmons and the crow and put them in a blender to maze. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Who started
2: his career as an Ultimate Warrior ripoff. Oh my God. Sting. He had like completely different wild makeup. It looked like Ultimate Warrior. It was like green or some shit like that. And then they reinvented the character to be a crow ripoff.
0: Yeah, I mean, he was kind of, he kind of had the similar face paint as Ultimate Warrior. But no one really ripped off Ultimate Warrior in terms of like wrestling quality because he was notoriously like the worst wrestler like that existed Did, like he can only wrestle like two minute matches because he didn't know what the fuck he was doing and he's also a legitimate crazy person and was, i think he's dead now i want to
2: say i've heard a rumor that there were actually like multiple wrestlers that were uh ultimate warrior nobody ever picked up on it
3: I've heard rumor, well, I, not recently. When I was a kid, and you guys may have heard it too, early to mid-90s, the kids I knew were, who were into wrestling, there was a really common urban myth amongst them that the the guy who was Undertaker had really actually physically died at one point and had mysteriously <laughs> just risen from the grave. And and even at nine, I was like, you don't actually think that's true, right? And they did, they believed it.
2: <laughs> did you hear? He burned down their parents' house, but... His little brother survived the fire.
0: (laughs) One of the great things about Undertaker is like all the lore that comes with them. And what Josh is talking about is the introduction of the character Kane, who they sold as being his brother. That's right. I remember. Okay, see,
3: I didn't know that part about the lore, but I remember the insane-looking Kane character. Yeah. Okay.
2: It's Undertaker's little brother. He survived the fire. That's his
0: little brother. God, this is getting like a Michael Myers shit. Dude, that was great about wrestling, man. And yeah, I'm going to fucking go on a tangent, but like the drama they sold, they sold it so well, Steve, that a lot of kids believe this shit was real.
3: And you know, I have to admit, even though I wasn't into it myself, people who are still like mad crazy into it at 40, I'm a little confused about, but like. Eight to 12-year-old boys, there's no mystery in why a lot of them would Mm. like that. I mean, it's... And and in fairness, and we've discussed this before, I was just watching Ultraman and Godzilla instead. And I'm not going to pretend that shit's any more serious. It's just a different... Exactly. Just a different
0: thing. People say, you know, wrestling's fake. Well, every show you watch is fucking fake. Yeah, they're all fake. But, like... there is an extreme amount of athleticism that goes into professional wrestling. Yeah, I
3: have to give them that much. I mean, they may not be fighters the way boxers are, but there's a, a definitely a tremendous amount of, like, gymnastic, like, I don't mean this is a knock, but like, like, surface, circus level, like, physicality that you have to be able to get along. And like, those guys have to be strong.
2: Oh, I have all the respect for wrestling. Uh, like, I don't watch it of course, anymore, but I still, like, I respect what they do and what they have to go through. Well, I guess Vince McMahon recently has been, been removed, but through the McMahon era, especially, how they were treated must have been a fucking nightmare.
3: Yeah, that one, I don't, you probably know more about it than I do, but I go back and forth about that one too because I also hear these stories about, like, the, the 80s, 90s era when it was huge and they were flying between cities in private jets getting drunk, banging hookers in the bathrooms and I'm like, that. Sounds kind of fun. I don't know if that's so bad. It's Kevin Nash and Scott Hall mostly, I think. Right. But, you know, it's funny. I learned two different ones that I didn't know about recently. The last year or so, there was apparently – I don't remember all the details. There was apparently one instance with the NBA, where, like the Suns or somebody, where they had a team on the plane and it turned into a gigantic brawl and there's a documentary about it. And there was apparently another instance with WWE or WWFP, either on a bus or on a chartered plane – like during the late eighties or early nineties, I think when Andre the Giant was still alive and they were all drunk doing coke and going two or three of them ended up getting into a real like an actual fight on the bus. And like plane. Or plane, yeah, that's what it was. And it like I you know, I get it in the ring, it's physical, blah blah blah. But you get two guys that jacked who were both six foot five roided on, out roided out on drugs and drunk having an actual fight in a confined space. I definitely do not want to be within twenty feet of them. Someone's gonna get fucking hurt, like really hurt.
2: A guy in a black mask had to jump on Andre the Giant's back and incapacitate him. Right? Yeah. No, thank you. Like it, My
3: heaviest I was two hundred and thirty-two pounds, I and mean, there's still no way I could have ever drug one of those guys down. Absolutely not. Like even at twenty-two, when I was playing ice hockey and used to getting hit, there's no way I was never that big. Fuck, dude. These guys are giants.
0: Well, now's a perfect time, I think, to go into the movie we're here to talk about. Fun tangents. I do love it. But let's talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie. Now, it's not called that, but I like to add that at the end. Yeah. I don't, anyone that just skips forward a little bit, I don't want him to be confused. This is not the series.
2: Street Fighter, the movie, the game
3: type shit. Right. The two of them should not be conflated. And Whedon actually feels that way himself. He's made a point of saying multiple times that people should not consider this movie to be connected to the show at all. And he doesn't even consider it to be Buffy canon. And frankly, Mr. Whedon, that's fine with me because the show is garbage.
0: The movie opens up in the Dark Ages. I think it takes us there super abruptly before it does. I had any time to orient myself <laughs> with watching this movie. Yeah, the movie's rough around the
5: edges.
2: This movie's 80 minutes. But we ain't got time to fuck around, Corey.
5: Since the dawn of man, the vampires have walked among us, killing, feeding. The only one with the strength or skill to stop their heinous evil is the slayer. She who bears the birthmark, the mark of the coven. Trained by the watcher, one slayer dies, and the next is chosen. Chosen.
4: And I shall be his sword.
5: Let Satan tremble. The Slayer is born.
3: <laughs> no, I and I think that's a good thing and a bad thing. The fact that it's so short means you don't get overloaded on the goofball content. But if they'd made it 20 minutes longer so that some of this stuff could have been flushed out better, that might not have been a bad idea. And I agree with you, Corey.
2: No, just 20 more minutes of Paul Rubens.
3: Oh, God, yeah, I mean, the the, the end at, during the credits when they just keep going with his improvised death scene is actually one of my favorite parts of the movie.
2: But uh Yeah, we'll get into it, but that, that's, that's the highlight of the entire film.
3: Right, but I think you're right, Corey. They, this is one of the rough edges. They throw you in it, into it too quickly, and the scene feels too rough itself. I think when they realized they didn't want to go Whedon's direction, they were doing a lot of on-the-spot rewriting, and it's not that the ideas were even necessarily bad. They just didn't
2: get polished the way they should have. We're introduced to the history of vampires and slayers in like two, maybe three sentences, and then yeah. we're done with it.
3: Yeah, it almost doesn't come back at all. I mean, they sort of touch on her dreams and stuff a little later with Merrick, but you're right. It's 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 a very soft pop plot point. It
2: feels like <laughs> you know what vampires are, right? Well, people kill them. They're called slayers. Here's Buffy now, and fr-
3: people kill them. But frankly, I'm kind of glad for that. It's like when people were happy that Reeves' Batman skipped the, the origin part, because it's like one of those things everybody already knows by now. It's like, I don't think you really need to familiarize people with what vampires are, you know? Yeah,
2: you don't need that scene
3: at all. Right.
2: <laughs> but she's the
3: chosen one. I mean, yeah, you need to get something in there, I guess, that establishes that, and the dreams were supposed to be for that.
2: Are you suggesting, Corey, it should have opened with a scene of Shang Tsung
0: killing her little brother? Dude, Shang Tsung kills Chan. (laughs) Shang Tsung kills Chan. That that can be the opening for any movie. (laughs) I don't care what movie it is. If it's a fucking documentary about endangered species of ape. Like, I don't care. Shang Tsung kills Chan, then you go into the movie.
5: Your brother's soul is mine. Brother never told you, never threaten a man's family. It's a pretty stupid thing to do.
2: If it's not the opening to the next Fast and Furious movie, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> uh, have you watched Dwayne's World lately? Lately? Uh, I watched it like a year or two ago
3: If that's a severed head I'm going to be very upset
2: Yeah,
3: <laughs> It's one of the best scenes in that movie It's a good movie
0: That gun rack shit is funny
3: it, I don't even own a gun Let alone enough guns to necessitate an entire rack yeah. Are you mental?
2: <laughs> uh, what, married with children What's his, That's my shit. Ed O'Neill, that's one of his best parts. <laughs> Wade has to hijack the camera back. He's like, "When right. you kill a man, <laughs> yeah, why is it when you kill a man in the heat of passion, <laughs> you're a hero?"
3: <laughs> oh, fantastic! That movie, that movie is really one of the brightest things to come out of SNL as far as movies are concerned. Yeah, turn it up.
0: Yeah, turn it up. Yeah, turn it up. Yeah, turn it up. Yeah, turn it up. I'm gonna shift this back into the movie though. Yeah. We get some cheerleading, some high school basketball. There's like a hip-hop style of cheerleading where the cheerleaders have weird uniforms. This is kind of our introduction to our main character. We, we get what she's about, right, Steve?
3: Yeah, we get thrown into where we are in Buffy's world of today. And admittedly, you know, it's a little bit dated in the sense that this movie's from 1992, and this is the kind of kind of bit in the kind of music that would have gone along. So, you know, yeah, you're watching it today. It's like this is cheerleaders wouldn't be doing this kind of bit in 2022 but it, it it's okay for me otherwise i mean she's bringing it on though yeah so we get thrown in with buffy and the rest of her crew doing doing the dance we get exposed a little bit they're, they're cheering during a basketball game um or actually i think it's a pep rally right at the beginning but uh, no, because you or, see the basketball right. coach. That's right, and, that's and he's my, woke. Yeah, he is. That's one of my favorite parts. I love the way they wrote this coach character. He's that early '90s woke. He's—I can't remember the actual coach's name, but he's clearly done up at the slick back here to look like the guy who was coaching the Lakers at the time, Pat Riley. Um, Pat, yeah, you, Pat Riley. Thank you. Okay, people, they're psyching you out. Let's not be so defensive out there, okay? Now, what do we say on the court? Repeat after me: I am a person. I have a right to the ball. Good. All right, now, here's our key play. We're going to, we're going to, uh, wait, are we the X's or the O's? If anybody goes,
5: oh, oh, right, okay.
3: And he's got this, you know, you got to actualize on the court and believe in yourself and you have the right to have the ball. I love that character. He, you know, very, very, uh, very much the, the type of woke teacher you would have found in the early 90s and the or- thing
0: is though like that it really makes me think that woke is like not a new thing no and you know how people say that movie can never be made today right I like to counter that by saying if this was made today you would call it woke yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how it works both ways, because I think there are both. I think there are examples from the era that's like now that wouldn't fly and they probably wouldn't do it. But there are other things like this where it's right. People would get made and people would be like, oh, this is a bunch of woke bullshit.
0: Yeah. People are like, oh, this is so like modern woke. But it's, right? it's, it's always kind of always been there. Yeah. Know? And that was supposed
2: to be the joke. Dude, Three Ninjas Kickback is woke.
3: Right? And, and you know and that's where the, you see the tongue in cheek right off the bat like they weren't trying to be woke they were trying to make that character come off as being the goofy out of touch high school basketball coach who who really genuinely wants to be super supportive with the students but the students think he's kind of an asshole you know <laughs> like he's
0: like eye it's like shut the fuck yes. up
1: yes
3: yeah, and you can tell the students don't take him seriously and I, I liked that touch uh, whatever coach Right. Him and the Stephen Root principal are both very good, I think. I like that.
2: Stephen Root as the principal is the unsung hero. B- Bill Dotrieve, high school principal. Yeah.
3: Don't think of me as Gary Murray
5: administrator. No. Think of me as Gary Murray party guy. Happening dude who can talk to the young. So tell me, it's, uh, it's drugs, isn't it? Hey, I know where you're coming from.
2: Believe me, I've had my drug experiences. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did
3: a lot. I
0: think he's been in everything. He is.
3: Oh God, Milton.
0: Oh. Book of Boba Fett. He was in this an episode of the Book of Motherfucking Boba Fett.
3: Yeah. God, He even played uh, an internal affairs investigator in Black Rain with Michael Douglas. I love
0: that movie. But, yeah. So we see that she's a cheerleader, Buffy, our main character. She's very centered in the movie during the cheer practice. So you're led to believe like this is who we're following. That's that's set up, you know, without any dialogue, I think. But we do kind of follow her and her friends along to after school activities, which mostly involves early 90s mall shopping, of course. I'm sure Steve was a fan back in the day. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
3: Absolutely. They were doing a lot of 90s mall shopping, mall ratting. I mean, these are... These are trust fund girls and you, you see it with Buffy especially. So yeah, I mean, this is their, their pastime is they're generally good girls. They're not doing anything terrible, but their, their pastime is, is shopping. That's what, that's what they're up to.
0: They look at an April O'Neil coat.
3: God. Yeah, they do. You're right. It's a yellow leather, April O'Neil <laughs> coat, which I, I love. I think that was an awesome early nineties touch for them. And, uh, yeah, it's funny, you know, Buffy loves it. The other friends uh, say, oh, it's it's yesterday. It's an old style. You don't want that. They try to talk her out of getting it, and it, it comes back on one of them later.
0: <laughs> Trying to attract Casey Jones? What are you doing with
3: this? Right. They could
0: have threw in a TMNT joke
3: in there, right? Good. Not that I'm disappointed with the way they cast that film, but with red hair in 92, Christy Swanson would have made a pretty good April O'Neill. Yeah. Huh. Hmm.
0: Josh, what do you think about Buffy and her friends? Like, what are they like? They're very uh, typical 90s clueless type characters,
2: you know what I mean?
4: Mr. Howard is so heinous. He's always giving me a hard time. I get a C plus on the test and he tells me you have no sense of history. I have no sense of history. He wears a brown tie. You got a C plus? I can't believe I cheated off of you. Excuse me for not knowing about El Salvador. Like I'm ever going to Spain anyway.
3: The dialogue between them throughout the movie, between that group of cheerleader friends, is great. There's
0: some really good jokes. I fucking hate their dialogue. Man. Really? Yeah. I think their dialogue is some of the
3: best written. The jokey parts, I think, are some of the best written parts of the movie.
0: I think these girls are written exactly the way they're supposed to be, which is annoying. Yeah, I agree with you about that. But I don't like that. I don't like that they're annoying. I mean, it it comes off the intended way. I think it kind of works, but it also, like, you don't
2: spend... It's like in the first 10 minutes, and you don't spend a lot of time with these characters. Just enough for you to get the idea.
3: Yeah, and I that's, I think, why it works for me. Because especially toward the end when Buffy herself is realizing these are a bunch of vapid idiots. You know, even she's irritated by them. And they're constantly just either making it worse or, or not paying any attention. And there's that moment at the end where Hillary Swank's character invites the vampires in. And when Buffy is like, why the fuck would you do that? The Hillary Swank character's response is, well, they're seniors. And it's the senior prom, you know.
0: So I invited them in. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, you really are an idiot. It um, reminds me of like a horror movie in that. And it is somewhat of a horror movie. But yeah. I, I mean in a different way. Yes. Where when you meet a group of people at the beginning they introduce them in such a way where you don't care if they die. You're like, you yeah. know what? Let's let these people die. I'm okay with <laughs> that. It reminds me of House of a Thousand Corpses, right? Where yeah. the that group of teenagers or college students, whatever they are, they go and they visit... The clown guy, I forget his name off the top of my head. Captain Spaulding. But they're, they're right. pretty obnoxious, right? Yeah. And you're kind of thinking, like, when they go to this Texas Chainsaw Massacre style home, I'm kind of okay if they die. Yeah. Because I'm not really on their side. That's kind of how I feel about Buffy and her friends. Like, I'm not really on their side.
2: So you're saying you really wanted the, the main character's father to get, like, skinned alive and...
1: Yeah.
0: Ideally, yes.
3: <laughs> I think I think Buffy's supposed to grow on you as as she evolves. Whether or not they did it successfully can be part of the discussion. But the others, I agree with you completely about. And I think that's part of. I think it was intentional with this. I think it's intentional with a lot of them. Is like, especially with this, because they do not have a lot of running time to work with anyway. But like, you know, there's no point in well, unless you're doing it as an emotional dig. Otherwise, there's no point in working to make you like characters that are just going to get killed. Like they're really. You know, it's kind of like a lot of background characters in a lot of different kinds of movies, like in war movies, sci-fi movies, whatever. It's like, you know that these t- six people or whatever are really just there so that there's somebody to die you know, like, I love aliens. I love aliens. But some of the marine characters, as good as they are, you know they're only there so that Cameron can kill them later in the movie, you know? They're not going to live. Yeah. So And then,
0: yeah, you're right. Cameron shows up. He kills them with his bare hands. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I can see James Cameron killing some actors with his bare hands. I think he might do it. And then he flees the country <laughs> and just goes underwater for six years. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> and
2: that's uh. the production of Avatar, everybody.
0: <laughs> right. God, yeah, what a
3: conflicting guy. He really is a very interesting human being, but yeah.
2: It seems like he's been making Avatar 2 for like 20 years. That's the thing with him. His movies always take
3: fucking forever to actually happen, especially this. You want it to be...
2: Can't wait to take my grandkids to Avatar 2.
3: Yeah, right? God, yeah, the third or fourth one should be coming out around the time I'm 90.
2: Yeah. You know? God... (laughs) Buffy and her friends are going to run the mall, but Donald Sutherland is on the prowl.
4: Sounds toasty. We're going to go. go. Excellent. What's playing there? Oh, no. doesn't matter. <laughs> Excuse much. Rude or anything? Nice ensemble. <laughs> what a homeless... <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah, he's looking around and he sort of silently confronts the group of them as they're getting into an elevator. And this is another one of those moments where I like their dialogue. They're just talking a bunch of shit about how he's dressed, and one of them's like, "What a homeless!" (laughs) It's like there's a bunch. He smells like urine. I I think the dialogue in that elevator is one of those moments where that shit probably wouldn't make it into a new movie because people would be like, "Oh, they're they're you know they're being elitist, they're being ableist about or whatever the right term is about homeless people, homoph. Home oh, homophobics a different thing that actually is not funny. Yeah, homol yeah exactly. It
0: would be Tilda Swinton in the remake.
3: You know, vagrant phobic or whatever the, the correct term is. But yeah, I did, I thought that moment we're, was was well written. Nah,
0: we're all a little vagrant phobic. I don't think anyone gives a fuck about
3: that. Yeah, I think it's true. <laughs>
0: But yeah, so he shows up and they they make
3: their way away and they get out of the mall and uh, start going separate ways. This movie can't seem – nobody outside of L.A. would even fucking notice. Even a lot of Angelinos wouldn't notice. But they – the one thing that's kind of weird if you do notice it is that they can't seem to decide what part of L.A. these girls are really supposed to live in. And they sort of imply at one point that they're in Pasadena, which isn't even really L.A. And then they imply at another point that they're sort of in West Los Angeles. There's a part in the movie – where they're debating about where they'd go see a movie, and uh, they, the the Beverly Center is on their list of options, and the Westside Pavilion, I think, is where they eventually decide to go. And if you live, if you live in Pasadena, especially in Friday night traffic, I don't see any fucking reason you'd be driving that far. It's ridiculous. Why would you go to <laughs> Beverly Center? More movie theaters. There's a AMC on Colorado in Pasadena. You can go to. Anyway, it
0: might not have been there at the time. No, it's,
3: you know what? That's true. That theater might not have been open.
0: Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Any case, I got this tattoo. On Colorado and Pasadena Did you really? Yeah Nice For those that don't know It's swan song (laughs) So Josh I think Merrick Who's Donald Sutherland In this movie Like the mentor guy His introduction Is very similar to Zatch In Surf Ninjas Wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah It's Yeah It's crazy
0: there's some like weird Zatch vibes like he's kind of like following them around you know he's going to be involved and the the dress the attire is similar as well because remember when we first see Zatch Josh like he's wearing like a long coat and like a hat like the same way this dude is you know kind of like an old timey detective look.
2: And there's also like an action sequence with Donald Sutherland killing vampires with a skateboard right? Yeah,
0: skateboard,
3: yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Introducing the two burnouts in the movie theaters, it's kind of a cliche way to do it, but I do like the fact that it really does feel for a moment they're like a bunch of teenagers in a movie theater. The girls are all too busy talking to each other. The goofball guys behind them who snuck in themselves are acting like dicks about the girls being noisy. And i, I It certainly felt like one of those nights that you had a bunch of 17 and 18-year-olds sitting near each other in a movie theater. Pike and Benny. Yeah, Pike and Benny. The only movie that was ever made during the 1990s in which Luke Perry is made out to be gross and not a sex symbol. Yeah. It's so funny that later in the movie when her friends see Buffy kissing him, they're like, oh my God, how disgusting. I'm like, there's no way women that age in 92 would have been jealous of her for making out with Luke
0: Perry. (laughs) They are meant to be like a little grungy. Yeah. You know? But sometimes the grungy dudes were handsome. No, it's true. You're right. And, and Kurt Cobain I, was a handsome man. He was.
3: He yeah. was. And I think they do a nice job in this movie of making the two of them kind of cliche grungy, early 90s, but still just grungy enough that you get it without it being so grungy that, like, these characters really are disgusting. It's also it's one of those things where like, the Luke Perry character seems to live by himself in a really cool studio loft somewhere downtown. And that's kind of like a 90s teenager movie trope. There's always one who somehow is 17 and still in high school, but they don't live with their parents and they work as an auto
1: mechanic. Yeah,
2: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Looks like he can barely afford clothes, barely afford food, but he's got like the sickest apartment ever.
3: Right, and a full-time job as an auto mechanic. It's like, when are you going to school?
0: (laughs) That's a very good point. It's one of the things about... Tangent alert right. about Beavis and Butthead that yeah. I never understood. Right. They have their own home. <laughs> yeah, and I you know I always thought the idea with them was supposed to be that they're like
3: they had a mother that just left them cash and was never around, but like you, they never actually explain
0: it. Like, yeah. Right. They talk about their parents as if they're away if they ever even bring them up at all.
1: Right.
2: I don't need them to explain it in Beavis and Butthead. I need them to explain it in Three Ninjas knuckle up.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. You know, in or in 80s and 90s movies one of the other ones was it's like okay, yeah, my parents are around but they're they're constantly working or they're constantly at social occasions. Buffy has the kind of cliche very wealthy trust fundy parents who like can't be around to pay attention to her cuz they're too busy going to soirées. And 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 uh, and charitable events and festivals, but they, high society we, shit, high society shit. But they, one of the other things I find is a little tropey and weird about some of these is like, the seventeen and eighteen year olds are frequently just out all night, and the seventeen year old can tell the parents at nine forty five on a Wednesday night that they're going out to go do something, and the parents are like, oh, that's fine, we're going to dinner, we're going to a bar. Yeah, right and I'm like first of all you're going to dinner on a weeknight at 10 o'clock at night like what the fuck is wrong with you secondly like you're, you don't care that your teenage daughter is out wandering around at 10 on a weeknight also that's after curfew
2: I guess the implication is Buffy's parents are just so wrapped up in their own shit that they yeah. don't really pay attention to her and you're
3: absolutely right and and up to a point I knew kids who lived like that anyway especially where I went to school a lot lot of trust fund kids whose parents didn't even really want kids if we're being honest you know and like
2: what they should have did is have the opening be Buffy in a car crash with her dead mom and then just do a one shot of an answering machine with the director's voice on it. This is
0: brain scan.
3: You know what she's really missing is a um, horror themed digital assistant that can do things like dial the phone for her.
0: Kyle is calling, master.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: I love it. <gasps> Merrick is calling. Sweet Jesus, Merrick all the is calling. They
0: put her in. Fuck. Oh, Steve's getting wood.
3: I can't. I can't even look. Honestly, like, I used to stop in the rental store and just stare for a minute at the cover of this VHS.
0: No wonder Steve likes this movie so goddamn much. Steve will be extraordinarily forgiving if he's attracted to the lead woman.
3: I, I'm not going to deny that, but I sincerely, like, she could have been way less attractive, and I sincerely think this is a fun movie. Okay. I, I'm not... We'll get to the ratings. I'm not going to give this a 10-10. I'm not... Look, there's a lot of vampire movies that are way better movies than this is. I mean, there's no argue. Look, Interview with the Vampires, a way better movie. I mean, like, if we're talking about actual film...
0: Queen of the Damned. Well, see, in that scene...
3: (laughs) Then we get off... But there's a whole separate genre for me of what I refer to as, like, goofball vampire movies, like Near Dark from the 80s. Lost Boys. Lost Boys. Thank you. Yeah, and, like... You know, they don't, those movies don't need to be interviewed.
2: My Little Vampire.
3: Interview's good yeah. on a whole other level, in a whole different way. I, I enjoy this movie. It's not good the way interview is, It, but I just find it fun. That, yeah.
0: So there's a character in this movie, Josh, named Amelin. I don't think <laughs> they say his name too frequently, but it's Paul Rubens, and it's. It's a good era for Paul Rubens. He was still getting a lot of work at this time, especially as his most famous character, Pee-wee. This is actually the first movie he got cast in after the adult movie theater incident.
2: Okay. Yeah. So hot
3: off it, huh? (laughs) So it's good that he got to play a real weird part right away.
2: (laughs) Josh, why don't you tell us about him? He's got long hair. He's uh, very uh, brooding. And he has a, a jacket. And he's
0: bad. He's played by Paul Rubens. <laughs> these, these are great character descriptions.
2: <laughs> no, but Paul Rubens like elevates the material. But on paper, there's not much going on.
4: Hello, this is not a caring nurture here. This guy's a blood sucking fiend from beyond the grave. Will you be wagging that jaw of yours while I'm biting it off?
3: No, it's a thin character and he needed to be written more substantially. When they realized they were going to do the movie this way, I really wish they would paused for like a month just to flush it out a little more. Because if they'd done things like write, write his character out a little better, it could have been so much more fun.
2: I would have settled with give Paul Rubens 20 minutes a camera and let him do whatever the fuck he wants. Just ad lib shit.
3: I agree with you completely. And it's amazing how often that kind of things happen. What, what are we talking about? We want one of our other podcasts. With, did we watch something that had Robin Williams in it? It was some, somebody like that. Directors used to do that with Robin Williams. They would just set up a, they'd set up a camera and they'd let him banter. Part of it, if I'm being honest, I've heard through the grapevine over the years, is if they didn't do that, he just wouldn't shut up. They had to give him a chance to vent it all out so they'd get him to do his actual work.
2: But, Apparently it was a nightmare for the Aladdin animators, right? <laughs> right.
3: You know, and um, but yeah, they used it. there's a couple actors I know directors would do that for. They would they they pick times. They would just set up a camera and say, "Here, you've got a thousand feet of film. It lasts 11 minutes. Do whatever you want." And then sometimes the footage would end up in the movie.
0: So you're saying that uh, Paul Rubens here is more about his mannerisms and his behavior than the, his his character?
3: Yeah, the character isn't bad. He just wasn't written with much substance. I think what makes the character really enjoyable is the way Rubens sort of camps into it.
4: I'll get you, Buffy, and your little dog, too. I guess so nobody sees in you. You don't really think you can stand up to him, do you?
5: Admit it, Buffy. Aren't there times when you just feel... Less than fresh.
2: I mean, the fact that I I never in my entire lifetime have ever caught this character's name, it says something about the character. I've always referred to him as Paul Rubens and or Pee-wee Herman. Pee-wee the vampire? Pee-wee the vampire. Count
0: Pee-wee. <laughs> Pee-wee the immortal. Uh. So the, the way this story kicks off proper is when Merrick tracks down Buffy and he kind of explains to her that you are the chosen one in a line of vampire slayers. It's kind of like um there's kind of like a reincarnation yeah. aspect to this, right? So like it it makes it seem like the vampire slayer lives for a certain time of their life, dies, and then the next vampire slayer is born, maybe with like some connected memories, kind of like Avatar the Last Airbender, right? Where they kind of like share a beingness. Because she does have dreams of the previous events of what you might call her previous lives, right, Steve?
3: Yeah, yeah. And that's another one of those little areas where, like, not a bad idea necessarily, but they they didn't flush it out well enough. But, yeah, she's got – that's supposed to be the connective tissue is these – what she thinks are just oddball dreams that are really, like, inherited memories of, of having lived multiple lives before doing this kind of thing.
2: This subplot could have been dropped from the film, I think. It, it, the film would have been better for it. Like, I get it, it's already 80 minutes. It's barely making the runtime. Why are we cutting things out? But you replace that with just more character stuff with Paul Rubens Rudger Hauer, maybe some more Merrick and Buffy. You don't really need this whole aspect of her having this lineage of other... Like, you could have just had, like, five-minute, you know, exposition scene. To deal with this shit.
3: I mostly agree with you. I definitely agree with you that they could have extended the film by a few minutes and given most of it to, uh, to Rubens and, and um, my boy, Roy, Roy Batty.
2: Yeah. Uh, the replicant vampire. You give uh, Paul Rubens a camera. Paul, what are you doing? Oh God, stop masturbating. <laughs> right?
3: No, I mean, I, I agree with you about the, the narrative part about the tieback or, or the dreams in, in so much as that they weren't developed enough to really be a useful part of the plot. And maybe they could have just used the time for the other stuff. I, I, I think that as an idea, it's a nice piece of connective tissue, but I will concede that it wasn't flushed out well enough to function in that regard the way it should have. And I will also agree in the sense that they should have my opinion, either.
2: I don't dislike it, to, it in the aspect, like uh, the Messiah Complex and Robocop 2. Like, I don't dislike it. I just think it's, the film w- probably would have been stronger had that subplot been dropped. It's just they, they do nothing with it.
3: Well, and, it's, and that's the part where I agree with you on both films. I remember just discussing that on Robocop, that like, I think both are nice additions, but I also think both failed to be developed to the point where, they served the movie the way they should have. And in RoboCop's case, it was because they trimmed out a bunch of that stuff without removing all of it, which is a mistake. And in this case, I think it was a, an underdeveloped idea that they never really had fully formed. But yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you. I would say they either needed to expand on it and make it work better or remove it because as it is, I would also agree they could have, They could have trimmed it out the way it is and it wouldn't have really damaged anything
5: that was very impressive the 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 tumbling
4: what oh i used to do gymnastics are you looking for somebody
5: i was looking for you actually
4: why am i in trouble or something because if i am i didn't do it
5: (laughs) no you're not in trouble i am i'm years late you should have been taught prepared But I wasn't certain until just now that it was you.
4: What are you talking about?
5: I'm saying that I've been searching everywhere for you, Buffy. Why? To bring you your birthright.
4: My birthright? Is that like a trust fund or something?
5: I think it'll be easier for you to understand this birthright if I show it to you. All right? So you come with me now. For the graveyard.
4: Uh, no, 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 no. My trust funds in the graveyard? God, what's your damage? Buffy? You're one of those skanky old men that like attacks little girls and stuff, right? Well,
5: forget you. My name is Merrick, and you have been chosen, Buffy.
0: <sighs> so Merrick does tell Buffy that you're the chosen one, he says, at one point, pretty early in their first interaction, he says, I wasn't sure until just now. And I think that's because she's doing gymnastics.
3: Yeah, he sees her doing the gymnastics stuff and is like, okay, she's got the physical
2: skill. So, yeah, he, like, tries to lure her away to a graveyard with the promise of her birthright. I'm like... Dude, That's not how you lure a seventeen-year-old into a graveyard. Come on, you gotta do a little bit better than that.
3: Yeah, I mean that's another one. I think she was good in it, but it's another one they could have just, just a little bit of polish. That scene could have been even better, you know. And how was he going to get her to go to the graveyard?
0: Yeah, there's like a cheapness to this movie, man. There is. You described it as rough around the edges, which is a good way to say it as well. But when I was watching this, I was like, this movie is like. It's almost – I know there's comedic aspects, but to me it seems like it's supposed to be so bad it's good. Like are they intentionally making this movie like
3: shit? I mean I I think that's where the tongue-in-cheek part comes in for me. I think to some degree, yeah. Like they they intentionally didn't take it seriously because it's supposed to lend to the humor of it. And that's where I think to your point where Whedon was angry that he was – concerned that people would see it as being bad on purpose where the director and the producer's point was like, no one is going to take this seriously. It has to be kind of stupid in order to play, but
2: it feels sarcastic almost in a sense, like almost like a, a, it's not, not the best comparison, but army of darkness and evil dead Two. you know, like almost a sarcastic tongue in cheek tone.
3: I think you're right. And then in addition to all of that, Corey, to your larger point, they made the movie on a little under $7 million, which even by 92 standards was not a whole lot of budget. And I think that that's where the other aspect of it comes in. You've got a movie that they were making to be frankly, kind of dumb for the sake of dumb, like because they knew going in, no one was going to take a serious dark movie about a teenage vampire. Seriously. But you know, they had to do it on this small budget. And I think uh
2: Forty five seasons of network television tell you otherwise, Steve.
3: Seven, like, I think. Well, and and that was part of my problem with the show. Every time I watched that show, it felt cheap to me. It it felt like schlocky, cheaply made, B grade pseudo horror for fifteen year olds that aren't discerning enough to care. And like I don't I don't recall any WB show having very good production value, frankly. Like
2: <laughs> I don't necessarily need shows of that time to, to look amazing. Like, I've watched a handful of us uh, early, like Star Trek Next Gen. Season one is rough, but it doesn't look amazing, but the writing is good. So, I don't know, is the writing at least good in the Buffy show? No. Okay. I mean,
3: that's part of my problem. Okay. I, I, I frankly not only find it to be cheap looking and cheap feeling, I also find it to be melodramatic and way too far up its own ass to be taken seriously. And I felt that way about it at 16.
2: You just don't get it, Steve. <laughs>
3: and I agree with you in the sense that like, look, TNG, frankly, all the way to the end, even last season, always feels cheap to me. It always feels cheap. It never feels like a show that they they took seriously in terms of production value but to your point i also never really cared because i found the show endearing enough and fun enough to watch
1: because you
2: like the characters
3: yeah you know and i'm not really even the biggest tng fan but but yeah i like the characters and like so yeah the fact that it didn't feel like it was made on a big budget mattered less to me you know but i I think it's an interesting contrast like you look at nbc shows because in fairness they're owned by universal even NBC's garbage shows and there are a lot of them a lot of those shows are awful but even when they're bad they feel really well produced because they were made by a company that normally makes movies and i think it's a real interesting interesting back and forth comparison to make but uh but yeah i mean with this film i i think that it doesn't bother me enough to put me off the movie but it was a, it was a relatively low budget movie and yeah it was kind of It was kind of stupid for the sake of stupid. Some of it was on purpose. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, what Whedon didn't like about it.
4: All right, let me get this straight, okay? You want me to go to the graveyard with you because I'm the chosen one and there are vampires? Yes. Does Elvis talk to you? Does he tell you to do things? Do you see spots?
2: Buffy isn't buying whatever Donald Sutherland is selling, right? But he ends up convincing her because she had a dream.
5: Have you ever had a dream that that you um you had you 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 could you do you you want you you could do so you you do you could, you you want you want him to do you so much you could do anything?
2: She had a dream. So, I have a dream. I have a dream. That convinces her to go to a creepy cemetery at, like, I don't know, midnight or some shit.
0: Yeah. She does get to face off against some vampires there, which is cool on the page, I think. (laughs) I don't think it's that great in execution. Like, this movie is advertised on IMDb. Now, IMDb, I mean, I guess to the movie's credit, it has to categorize a movie a certain way. Yeah. It's action, comedy, fantasy.
3: I think comedy and fantasy aren't that far off. Action... Yeah,
0: the action is debatable because the action is pretty fucking bad. Yeah, But I will say this, and I, we're going to jump around a lot on this whole podcast. We don't have to go exactly in order. But yeah. Christy Swanson as Buffy is very physical, and she excels at being physical in this movie. She is super athletic. Yeah. She, You can tell she's doing her own tumbling, and she's doing a lot of the training moves that she does when she's doing this fucking laura croft tomb raider <laughs> training montage shit i think she really tried with this
3: part and that's part of why i find endearing about it like there's not a lot to this part it's as we said a kind of a cheapo goofy movie about silly stupid stuff and she she managed for me to find a way to play it seriously enough to not make it feel like she was just dismissing it while at the same time not being too serious i mean not that I don't even mean this is an insult to her. Not that I'd ever put her in, like, top ten greatest actresses ever or anything, but she she did really nicely with this this part.
0: Yeah, I think she excels at the physicality, really. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, like, look, they're not going to cast her for something, uh, uh, much ado about nothing. But for this, I think she's very good. <laughs>
0: Steve, did you enjoy the training montage that we get to see her do with Donald Sutherland? I mean, I'm really never very fond of
3: montages, frankly, even in movies that I like. It's always just like, here's how we get you from point A to point B without having to really show it all or explain it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's fun. It's a fun one. I mean, you know, look, at nine when this came out, getting to see an extra few minutes of her dancing around in spandex certainly worked for me.
2: Something about her outfit like it's so 90s it, oh, it looks yeah. so awesome like i want to see yes. her like as like a guest character in like mortal kombat or something like that so i can have that outfit it looks so much like the
3: original costume for um oh god what's the female character's name the the, the woman soldier character who's in it, almost Sonia the young... yeah thank you it's it, it's a lot like what they put her in in the first one yeah absolutely just different
0: colors yeah
3: yeah I agree it's time perfect period I hate it when people pick on clothing that's out of fashion in a 30 year old movie it's like it wasn't out of fashion when they made the movie it's not their fault time passes it's so ridiculous
2: I love it the socks and the sweats and shit like oh it looks so 90 looks
3: perfect yeah it's so so early 90s it was exactly yeah fine it's stupid by 2022 standards but that's where we were in that moment like it's awesome like
0: now Buffy is a woman that realizes she's the chosen one Steve she sets aside her personal dreams and aspirations of being that's one of my favorite parts a
5: buyer oh John I would have been a wonderful bootmaker
4: that is so dull Mm. I'm going to be a buyer. Of what? I don't know. It's just a job I heard of. It's sound pretty cool. You know? Buying. Buyer. To buy.
3: Like that. Right, yeah. She, it's so perfectly written for her, though. She tells Merrick that all she wants to do is graduate, go to Europe, marry Christian Slater, and die.
2: How dated is that reference? Right. But for kind of a
3: shallow teenager at that point, I mean, look, there's, there's girls that age saying the same thing right now about Chris Hemsworth. And in 25 years, their daughters are going to be like, why would you want to marry that fat old fuck? You know, like, so absolutely.
2: When I heard that, I was like, oh, somebody clearly hasn't watched Alone in the Dark.
3: <laughs> right? But, you know, that's the way it always goes. I mean, look at all the the video footage from the 60s of girls passing out at Beatles concerts. You know, you find me a 17 year old girl now who's interested in Paul McCartney.
2: Ringo Starr is still sexy, (laughs) goddammit. (laughs) I think we found one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, absolutely.
2: (laughs) The unsung hero, Ringo Starr. Uh, But, yeah, yeah, I mean,
3: it's, I mean, look, I am one of the most nostalgic people on the planet. for the, There's a period between like 85 and 2002 that I think is just like the greatest period in modern human history or one of them anyway. You know, I actually am also quite fond of like the 20s and the 30s, but just the 90s is so nostalgic for me. It's so endearing. I love that shit. You know, it's fine that it's old. It's fine that we've moved on, but we, you can still go back and enjoy the
0: past a little bit. So it turns out Buffy, she has kind of like inner power. She has special abilities that I think part come from her personal life and like training and doing generally athletic things like cheerleading. But also she has kind of like Patricia Arquette in Nightmare on Elm Street 3 powers, right, Josh? <laughs> she has like agility powers. I was going to say it's it's a lot like an animality,
2: but nothing like it and a lot cooler. <laughs> Yeah, she's really good at punching. She punches really hard. <laughs> she can also do a good cartwheel. I'll yeah. tell you what. She's very athletic, and uh, it was weird when Donald Sutherland started taking pictures. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding.
0: Yeah, it's a little strange. It was a little
2: strange. <laughs> a little strange. <laughs> <laughs> when he refused to get out of, like, behind the corner. What are you doing? Nothing.
0: He does show up in her locker room.
3: There is some shit. Yeah, he does walk right into the locker room at one point. And even yeah. I, I do like her response though. She gets all surprised to see him and she's like, what are you doing here? This is a naked place.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I happened to my notes like, where the fuck is anybody? Like he just shows up randomly throughout her high school. It re- I mean, probably not
3: quite to that extreme in real life, but it really is amazing to think about how much different the world is. Somebody reminded me recently, an adult from my family reminded me recently that even late nineties, you could straight up just walk into an airport. You didn't need a ticket or anything. you just walk in. You didn't even have to go through security. If you wanted to go drink at the airport bar, you'd just show up and drink at the airport bar.
2: Yeah, you could just show up in a girl's locker room in a high school and throw a dagger at her face. Right? Yeah. Well, look, they'd catch you eventually, but, I, man,
3: I'll tell you, from what I heard about people who went to LAUSD schools, I'm pretty sure an adult could have walked onto that campus without really... Look, look let's be frank with each other, and I'm not saying this in a light way because I understand how serious it is, but there have been... 15 or 20 instances just in the last 20 years where a person in their late teens or early twenties armed to the teeth with a backpack full of ammo and five guns has been able to just walk into a school and shoot multiple people. So clearly even now they're not paying a ton of attention. Like I, I have, I find it difficult to believe that an 18 year old with nine guns and 40 pounds of ammo and a body vest and goggles on isn't noticeable, but somehow this shit keeps happening.
2: Pre-Columbine was the golden era. You can just get away with shit.
3: Dude, it sort of was, though. I mean, I remember the day I went to school, Columbine happened, and other kids coming up and asking me if I'd heard the news. And we were the same age. I was 17. It was fucking frightening. It was frightening. At 17, I had never considered the possibility somebody might show up at school with an automatic weapon and just shoot 20 people. It had never occurred to me that might happen. It was so odd to, to hear. and I mean, people at school were really concerned. I remember the administration talking about maybe locking down lunch period just to keep kids from freaking out about it.
0: We're going to take you all and lock you in a room.
3: Yeah, well, that was probably why they didn't do it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So
0: if it does happen here, it'll be nice and easy for the perpetrator. Right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: And it led to Gus Vince. What every fucking edgy person around my town growing up was watching Gus Vincent's Elephant.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why he felt the need to... I don't know why he felt the need to try to remake Psycho Shot for Shot either, but yeah, that was not a good
0: film. R.I.P. Anne Heche. Yeah, I don't... Yeah,
3: I don't want to... I actually feel bad talking shit about it now because I really do feel bad about what just happened to her, but
0: yeah. I also feel bad about what happened to her victims.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. The whole thing's real fucked. She had a really fucked up sad life. I don't want to get into that.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about Buffy. So she, she kind of gets her first night of being the vampire slayer, right? She lures in a vampire. She just, like, walks down a misty alley. Now, Steve, this is the kind of alley that uh, you might see a man skateboard down and get yes. a disc handed to him like in Hackers.
3: One of my favorite things they do in a <laughs> lot of movies, because they love the way it looks, is they'll water down all the streets and sidewalks. And there's multiple scenes where, there's one where she's outside the mall talking to Pike, and I think again in the alley scene here, where everything's been been watered down, and it's supposed to be L.A. or the L.A. area during roughly like the time of year we're in right now, and I'm like, motherfucker, it's been eight months since the last time it rained. You gotta stop spraying down those fucking streets. But yeah, she's walking down one of those steamy alleys where a guy who calls himself the, calls himself the Plague might ride a skateboard to pick up some data. The plague, <laughs> that's yeah. what it is, yeah. You know, it's also the kind of alley where a Foot Clan member might offer to sell you boxes of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and she's just walking along waiting to be attacked and talking about how she's waiting to be well, attacked. Well, she's
2: wearing a t-shirt saying, I'm a helpless victim.
1: So. Right,
2: which I like. That probably added to it.
3: You know, I mean, look, it's not a great scripted scene, but it's its, it's a little bit fun. It's her first outing trying to really be a vampire hunter by herself.
2: Oh, I guess I'm just some poor innocent Kia.
1: Right? You know. Excuse me. Aya! Aya! <laughs> Ugh.
3: I'm glad they decided to go goofy tone with the whole movie, because if it weren't, if they hadn't embraced it and done the whole movie at that level, then those scenes would have just been bad. And instead, it's like, yeah, it's, it's goofball, but at least it's in line with the tone of the rest of the movie.
2: We can't gloss over her love interest, Pike, and his good friend, Benny. Benny, unfortunately, gets killed by Pee Wee Herman and then <laughs> <laughs> comes back to, to Pike like a... What's the fucking Salem's Lot-esque scene?
3: Well, so I'm going to... Corey probably will remember. I'm pretty sure they stole this scene directly from the Lost Boys. Yeah. It's one of my main... I know you noticed it. Flying at the window? Yeah, exactly. And it takes a minute to notice that it's happening. Yeah. You know, yeah. So it's one of my favorite moments in Lost Boys. And Lost Boys is one of my favorite vampire movies. But yeah, they definitely stole that moment from Lost Boys.
2: (laughs) Well, if you're going to steal, steal from the best...
3: Yeah, exactly. Steal from a classic. So, yeah, he comes back. He's floating out the window. One kind of goof in that moment, you can see his reflection in the window. Um, <laughs> okay. But I have a feeling... Well, in fact, I know that removing reflections from glass was something that was actually really hard to do in post at the time.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, that couldn't have been an easy task at the time. Everything no. was done with mirrors.
3: In fact, a year or two later, when they lost Brandon Lee shooting The Crow without having really fully finished the film they had to go back to try to fill in some scenes they hadn't finished. And there's one moment right after he comes back from the grave where he goes to his old apartment and looks at himself in the mirror and has a meltdown. And they actually got that to work by digitally removing him from other footage they weren't using in the movie and then inserting him into the mirror using a computer. And in 2022, that probably doesn't sound like shit, but in 94 when they made it, they were actually writing magazine articles In effects magazines, about how difficult it had been to to do it. Yeah. Fango? Yeah, Fandango and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. (laughs) Or Fangoria, I mean, yeah. Yeah.
2: Just as a side note, have you ever heard the interview with Steven Seagal and he talks about Brandon Lee's death and he tries to, like,
3: I would have survived.
2: Take credit for it, for like somehow, like, they called me immediately and I was the one to tell them. They did not. That fucking piece of shit, I hate
3: that guy. Did,
0: did he actually say, I would have survived?
3: No, I, I don't think so, but it's okay. the kind of thing I can see him saying. I was going to say, let's test it. Right, let's yeah, let's <laughs> test it on you, see if you can take a bullet in the abdomen, and then wait around for an hour before the ambulance gets there. Like, and that, that, guy, that guy also made up a bunch of stuff about his background and claimed that Jean-Claude Van Damme couldn't actually win a fight. He's a total piece of shit. He's over in Russia right now hawking shit for them in TV commercials while they invade another country. He's one of Putin's butt boys. Yeah. Anyway, fuck Steven Seagal.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't like that dude. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I think one, probably one of the more remembered scenes, and I've only seen this movie once. Steve, so you can let me know. Right. Is when Paul Rubens as a vampire attacks Pike, who's of course Luke Perry's character. Yes. Right. They come after him and in his van. Why don't you <laughs> kind of lay it out? Yeah, this part's
3: sort of amusing. It's another one that could have been a little better, but they, yeah, they come after him when in his van, and he eventually gets Paul Ruben's peewee on the roof of the van. He's driving around. It's like the slowest, slowest way of filming this. Yeah, I
2: was going to say, they're driving a solid 30 miles per hour. Like... <laughs> people will hear it eventually
3: the group of us watched a movie called Ronin recently for a pod we haven't recorded yet and like I think I'm the only one in the group that really likes it but it's fine one of the great things about that movie one of the interesting things production wise is the car chases and it's all this material about how they did these car chases through Paris and they the, the driver was really going a hundred miles an hour through these narrow little streets and there's there's one chase they needed 300 stunt drivers for in order to make sure they could do it without killing anybody and Then you watch this scene? It's like the exact opposite end of the spectrum. Exact opposite. Yeah, this stunt driver's going eight miles an hour with a stunt double strapped to the roof of the... Well,
2: Well, to be fair to Buffy, Paul Rubens wasn't on the top of the roof of a (laughs) car in a wig in Ronan.
0: You know? Yeah, exactly, and like... Maybe that's what Ronan needed to really pull Josh over, right. over the edge.
3: You know, when if you... It's it's one of those movies, and I don't want to get too into the review of that one, but it's one of those movies where, like, even people that didn't love the rest of the movie and in reviews will comment about how incredibly amazing and difficult those car chases were and blah, blah, and the real speed. And yeah, and yeah, like, with this one, it's just, there's almost no effort, but it was kind of amusing. Uh, Pee-wee ends up losing one of his arms. It's also interesting... They really ignore a lot of the vampire rules for this movie, which is fine. You don't need them. But like in Blade, for instance, one of the vampires loses an arm to Blade early in the film, and it grows back slowly over the course of the story. Um, where in this one, it's like once the arm's gone, it's gone. Yeah, you know, he just he's not gonna get it back. So he spends the rest of this the rest of the film being this hobbled one-armed vampire. Which is pretty funny. Rucker Hauer even says,
0: like, how did you survive? Yeah, how did you survive long? the
3: Crusades? I yeah. can't do
0: you this old.
2: Yeah, he's, like, roasting right? him. At one point, he asks, you know, did you make Raiden beg for his life
0: before destroying him? <laughs> <Which> is, <laughs> he is of no concern to us.
1: You let
2: him live? Oh, hold on, hold on. Let me do a front flip. <laughs> so... Uh, Lothos gives off like very like Dracula and Castlevania vibes to me, like
5: Dude, the mustache yes. and like
2: mullet kind of look kind of works for me with the the get up If they'd made a Castlevania
3: movie in 1988 or 1990, you're right, they absolutely could have gone with Rutger Hauer as that version of Dracula.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Alucard.
2: Alucard. It's for, <laughs> that's what he's called right? yeah. in
0: Castlevania. It, that's his son. Yeah.
3: I just recently bought the Castlevania collection for PS4. It's really it's a lot of fun to get play play a
0: lot of those old ones. Nice. You can skip Simon's quest though, right?
2: Yeah,
3: that one's not as
0: good.
2: (laughs) I I don't think I've ever beaten a Castlevania game legitimately. I think I've always I haven't uh, put in Konami codes and shit like that.
3: Part of the reason I want to replay them as an adult is because the only times I ever got through the NES ones as a kid was when I was tag teaming it with another kid. So I want to see if I can beat them by myself. but, uh, yeah. Yeah, and then... Uh, it, so he's great. I, I like referring... I mean, he's he's a good character. I like Lothos, but I also like referring to him as Roy the Replicant Vampire. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just because. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, he's very good in it. And Yeah, so Amelin, Pee-wee loses an arm, and um, Pike manages to escape. Well, because Merrick helps him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Buffy shows up, too.
3: Buffy shows up, too. That's right. And they, they rescue him even when... David Orkett gets gets taken away.
0: It's funny because you guys were talking about Lothos, who's Rutger Hauer. Yeah, like he just does a lot of like, for the uh, for the beginning portion of the movie, just kind of like uh, sitting in a chair, lounging, like lingering in thought, <laughs> like ordering people around.
2: Well, he's napping in his coffin with his
0: red nightlight.
2: <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: But uh, he, you know, he's evil because he eats a kitten off screen.
3: I I like that's another one of those little joke moments that like it's goofy but I like it you know he's like I'm gonna go take a nap with the snack and he just takes the kitten yeah
0: <laughs> so stupid it
3: is but it's, it's stupid in the way I think it's amusing so I'm good with it
0: but like that I think is like one of the the better jokes in the whole movie yeah and I mean, like that just goes to show how low the fucking bar is.
3: Well, I see, I mean, I agree with you. Like, the, the whole movie isn't up at that par, but the moments in this movie that work for me work really well for me. I really like a lot of the exchanges between the girls and between Lothos and Amlin And, like, that's that's really the high pi- part of the movie for me is the, where, where the comedy, where I think the comedy does work. I mean, it, look, it's a stupid joke. It's like, but it's kind of like, uh, I'm not comparing the movies really, but, like, The Naked Gun with Leslie Nielsen they're not really good movies. They're stupid as fuck. Airplane's one of the dumbest movies ever made, but the humor is so fucking stupid in just the right way.
0: Yeah, but those like, movies, they they embrace that in a way that this movie doesn't fully. Okay, well, I think I kind of agree with you about that, that
3: they didn't get the full bear hug here, and they should have. And that's one of my criticisms of the movie, too. When they when they realized that Whedon's darker approach wasn't going to work, and they, they should go tongue-in-cheek, They should have bear hugged that shit and just gone nuts with it. And instead they went like two thirds of the way and I still like it, but I will also admit that's one of the movie's big shortcomings.
2: I just, I I don't think this would have worked as a big goofy Leslie Nielsen parody film. I kind of like it as more of a Shaun of the dead horror comedy kind of. Oh no,
3: I kind of agree with you there. I didn't mean that. I think that they should have done it the way Nielsen did a vampire movie called dead and loving it. And it's terrible. It's not even one of his better movies.
2: No, we forget that one.
0: But uh, You know what?
3: Um, I don't hate it. I don't really <laughs> hate it either, but it's, not, it's just not – But like I just mean in, sen- in the sense of like embracing the camp at that level. Like I don't think they should have done it the way he did Dead and Loving It. I just think that like if they'd made this movie with more time and another $3 million budget and designed it to be 20 minutes longer and everything had lined up right, it could have been – Better and more fun than it is. And I still like it.
1: If
2: they could do it over, do it better, <laughs> don't fuck it up.
1: It's See, a better
3: film. Well, no, no, there's some movies I really feel that way about where like the idea was good, but everything else got fucked. And in this movie, I don't really feel that way. I feel like they started going the right direction and just didn't get all the way there. That, that's kind of my takeaway.
2: Hey, Eric, must be halftime. <coughs> hey, babe, you want to get some real power between your legs?
1: Yeah, I do. You're a I'm telling the world!
0: Steve, there's kind of like a chase and an action sequence that follows around this point in the movie. What would you call a woman that beat you up and stole your motorcycle?
3: Dude, okay. All right, so there's one moment there, and I'd forgot. I'm going to tell you, it's probably been seven eight nine years since i actually watched this movie despite the fact that i like it and she goes to chase to steal the motorcycle and the guy who owns the motorcycle is on a payphone he's a scumbag biker dude and when he sees her running toward the motorcycles he turns around and he yells hey baby how'd you like to have some real power between your legs yeah and when i was nine and i saw this movie for the first time There isn't a chance in hell I understood what the fuck he was talking about. Yeah. Like, I knew that Christy Swanson gave me tingle feelings, but I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. And I can remember my mother saying, that's a gross line for that character to have. My mother thought it was pervy. She didn't stop me from the movie, but I didn't get it. And then years later as a teenager, it suddenly clicked with me. And like, for some reason, that line is one of the things about this movie that's always stuck in my head because it really is such an aggressively perversely sexual thing to say to an 18 year old girl and in a movie that's mostly aimed at teenagers like it really like that is really an aggressively sexual statement for a young girl you know and I'm like god damn I can't really believe they wrote that line for a character but it's it's also kind of good but yeah um she she gets away with the motorcycle and uh I don't know what I'd say I'd probably just say here you want the motorcycle
0: take it you know take anything you want from me right literally
2: right place right time luke perry just happens to be in the exact same scene also with his motorcycle
3: well i mean come on that's just another like the the terminator happens to come up on john on his harley at the exact right time that john's escaping the mall
0: on a dirt bike
3: in my experience
2: there's no such thing as coincidence (laughs) i thought
0: he was driving to the galleria And he saw him on the
3: way. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he was, he was going to, you know, and you're actually, you're right. He shows up at the gallery, goes into the mall first, has the fight with the T-1000 and then leaves to chase John. Yeah. But it's still, I mean, it's always like, anytime you find yourself saying, isn't that convenient, welcome to every movie that's ever been made. Yeah. You take any one element out, even in a really good movie. There are so many moments in movies from the eighties where this problem could have been solved with a cell phone, but like the cell phone doesn't exist. You know, so like, you know, I, 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 it's another one. My mom used to love pointing that out. We'd watch TV shows from the '80s. She'd be like, but "If they had cell phones, this episode could never exist."
1: You know? <laughs> like, I
2: mean, Home Alone doesn't exist. I think that's a big obvious one.
3: Yeah, that uh, yeah, that's a good example. Home right?
0: Alone does not happen at all.
3: Exactly. You know, so it's like I I don't think even with good movies you can't nitpick those moments too hard because ultimately it's always how coincidental
0: is that like. But this motorcycle chase leads them to what I think is a cool setting, at least visually, which is uh, the Rose Parade storage float area. Yeah,
3: this is – so I think this movie – and I like the first part of it. Which means they drove for an hour. Yeah, right? Or they really did live in Pasadena. So this movie, again, can't seem to decide quite where they live in the L.A. vicinity. Yeah. But uh, I really think the movie gets better during the third act. All of a sudden – The actors seemed more comfortable with the characters and the set sets got a little more thoughtful and the, I don't know, somehow for me, and it's, it's to some degree, it's something I can't even fully verbalize, but even though the ending's not amazing, I actually think the third act of this film is better than the first two, just in, it it feels like they got to a point where everybody was way more comfortable with what they were doing. I almost feel like they'd gone back and reshot. Third act's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, and that scene in the storage facility is one part of that for me. I, I think it's a cool environment for that scene to take place in.
0: It's just the confrontations are so stiff it's at true. times. Like, I don't know why one person isn't attacking another person. Yeah. Or like, sometimes Buffy's helpless and sometimes she's not.
3: Yeah, I and I agree with you about that. Whatever
0: the plot needs her to be, Corey.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's kind of true in a lot of other movies too, where it's like there's supposed to be this – this really powerful character but they don't act on it in moments where you feel like they should or or like their
0: first confrontation I think Lothos like he grabs Buffy or something or he has her somehow but like why doesn't she just punch him like you know sometimes she is very capable and adept and sometimes she's just like oh and you it's
2: because she secretly
3: wants it. One of the areas I'd pick out too is like at the end at the prom, where the, some of the teenagers like Pike are fighting off the other vampires. It's like when I said a moment ago, some of the normal vampire rules sort of get ignored here. Like historically, the lore always makes vampires way stronger than normal people, but in this movie, teenagers can fight the vampires. Hillary
0: so. Swank should be able to beat all their asses. She's a boxer. Yeah, she's and, she, and a trained karate kid. Yeah, okay. she's, she's a karate kid.
3: Unfortunately, after the boxing ended, or the boxing career ended, because... No, she's the next karate kid. Yeah, she's an next, well, and an next boxer, too. Now she's just being fed through a straw.
2: Yeah, I was about to say, and that doesn't count either. She's now paraplegic in a vegetable.
3: But actually, you not, because she doesn't, at the end of the movie, does not want to keep doing she's that. She's dead. Yeah, she's, <laughs> but... um. Here we go. Yeah. But you know what? Maybe she'd be brought back as a brain-damaged vampire boxer.
0: (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Uh, So this this first confrontation, which kind of leads us into the third act, Steve. Merrick, the mentor. You know, your classic hero's journey. The Obi-Wan Kenobi of the movie gets killed. It's another
3: one. I wish that even again, and even a movie that I like, I wish they'd handled this a little differently. You know, he's, he's made a point throughout the movie saying like, I can't get involved. I'm not supposed to get involved. My whole role is that I keep getting reborn to train you And you know I couldn't fight the vampires anyway. And then he finally just has this moment where it's like, yeah, I'm gonna see if I can kill Lothos and get himself killed. Um,
0: You know what? Let me see if I can fuck this dude up. (laughs) Yeah, you know I don't. Yeah,
3: it's like that's that's one of the few parts of the movie like I'm really critical of. It's like why why do it that way? You could have had him get killed by accident. You could have had him do it as a means to save Buffy. Like maybe he realizes she's in too much trouble, so he gets between her and Lothos, knowing he's gonna get killed to save her. But like. It it was not the right way to get rid of his character.
2: Well, Sutherland didn't anticipate Lothos deflecting the obvious, like, stabbing move. (laughs) No! Not this one!
5: Lothos. (laughs) Ashes to ashes. What I've done. <laughs> dust, dust. We're leaving. We're not eating? She's not ready.
3: Yeah, not a great fight scene.
0: Few of them are, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, I
3: mean, it's true. It's They don't really, they mm. don't go very heavy. There's definitely no, like, blade-level vampire action happening in Buffy.
0: No, yeah, it's <laughs> not quite, like, You know, I mean, she's good. She's adept. She's skilled. But like that never really makes her fight scenes with the other people that great. Like, she's very physical. Right. But, like, the the stunt coordination or, like, the fight choreography, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. That was never really an involved part of the filmmaking, you can tell. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
2: What you're saying (laughs) is we need the Buffy the Vampire Slayer re-release by George Lucas where they (sighs) digitally add a... No, 15 to 20 minute fight scene between Merrick
0: and... It- what I'm saying is Joss Whedon did this movie and we need the Snyder cut. Snyder cut! <laughs> Fuck, dude. You let Lucas do it, he's just gonna add in a bunch of
3: digital do and tell you the movie's better.
0: Yeah, that's gonna be the Lucas version, yeah. but like, let's do a side-by-side. So on one hand, you have the Lucas version where there's all these CGI monsters... In the background, and sometimes in the foreground, for some reason. Oh,
3: you know what? This is the version where the awkward-looking dark seed is the ver- the villain. Yes, yeah, great.
0: Mm-hmm. And then next to it, you have the Snyder cut, where it's either like a sh- there's like a gold sheen, where or- Buffy has a poorly removed mustache. Yes, <laughs> well, that would be the Whedon.
2: Oh, the the four and a half hour cut of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> Part One.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Multiple parts. You know, you got Jared Leto shows up at the end, and he says, "We live in a society."
3: <laughs> it was
2: the real Joker, one that I'm
3: actively working to
2: destroy. The most obnoxious thing of coming out of the Snyder Cut, I heard he wanted to do that uh, that addition in black and white. But the studio was like, "No, fuck no, you're getting your cut." Stop. Just stop.
3: Zack Snyder was kind of cool real early in his career. I really do like his version of Dawn of the Dead, but the guy only knows how to make a movie look one way. Ugh. I, I, like, I feel a little bit bad talking super-duper shit about Justice League, despite acknowledging that it's largely his fault, just because I know that like his daughter killed himself herself during that time. That must have really fucked him up in the creative process, and he left both So like, yeah. some credit due there, but yeah, I just... Like, I really do like his version of Dawn of the Dead. I thought Sucker Punch was flawed, but was fun to watch, you know, like.
2: Sucker Punch is an, a fucking atrocious film. To I, I, I hate it so much. Really? I don't, I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like I, it You know, all. I'm
3: not surprised you guys don't love it, but I'm surprised you're that negative about it. I, I, I think it's a visual experience, but it lacks substance.
2: It's not every film that gives me like a strong negative uh, emotion towards sucker punch lands it.
0: Really? I want to say this officially if we're going to talk about Zack Snyder because I know sometimes I get a little too into my criticism. First of all, he seems like a cool dude. Yeah. like He seems like a genuinely fucking good person. And some of his stuff, again, I think has been pretty, pretty decent. Some of it. I do like some of his stuff. And I'll say this. The stuff I don't like, if I'm talking shit about it. Anyone that's listening, just know that like, it's just a matter of opinion with him because a lot of people yeah. clearly love his shit well, and I, I'm just not one of them. And that's not a big deal. You I, know?
3: I I can't wait to argue with you about it when we eventually watch it and maybe with Josh too. But I do not think Man of Steel is totally irredeemable. I do think there are certain pieces of it that were done nicely.
2: I'm lukewarm on Man of Steel for the most part. I think it's okay. It's a f- decent film. There's... There's a lot of things to dislike about it, though. There's a lot of things of to dislike about yeah, it. By and
0: large, it. I do not like that movie. But, but you know what? I don't like a lot of his movies. The ones yeah. that I think are on the higher end are ones that are like direct adaptations. And well, the Watchmen, more accurate he is to the source material, thought, just the better it is.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, in Watchmen, he changed the ending, but I liked it. I thought he did a, a, a good job with Watchmen. That's not an easy thing to turn into a movie. The fact, the fact that Watchmen wasn't unwatchably bad is in and of itself an accomplishment.
0: I agree. Yeah. You know, and I actually like, don't hate the ending of, of his version of Watchmen. You no, know, I, I think I get the reasoning and it, it's fine it, with the me. The comic
3: book's ending is too abstract for most people. Yeah. And I frankly I think the movie's ending might be too abstract for most people,
1: but the <laughs> comic
2: book, even more so. <laughs> yeah. Like, someone says to me, Batman killed a guy. I'm like, fuck, really? Wake the fuck up once you've lost your virginity to this fucking movie. Right, obnoxious phrasing, but you know what? He's right.
3: He's right. There's no way you can really keep writing Batman this way in the modern world. You can't. Even even Burton had had Batman toss a dude down a fucking manhole with a bomb attached to him. Like eventually he's going to have to kill somebody. It's bad enough we expect him to keep surviving against people that have guns
2: when half his face isn't protected from guns. Like I think you can. He can't in a post Christian Bale Christopher Nolan Batman world. You absolutely can tell a Batman story where he does not kill and have that kind of even be the crux of the film. Like the whole point of the Dark Knight trying to get him to break that rule.
3: I think Bruce is dead inside the first two years as Batman if he really refuses to kill anybody. I think he's he's well, going to be backed into a corner where he's eventually got no choice. Those those people are not going to say fine arrest me.
2: It's movies, Steve. you got to suspend disbelief. Like, uh, do you really think the ninjas are surfing? Well, fine, but by how
3: much? I mean, at some point I'm suspending disbelief so much I can't watch it anymore. It's why I won't watch X-Men movies anymore. You want me to believe Storm can control the weather? Fuck that. Yeah, bro, it's in her genes. Yeah, it's in her genes that she can make lightning bolts. No, sorry, I'm done. I'm not 12 anymore. Like, I can't look past stuff that didn't bother me when I was 12.
2: Look, Wolverine doesn't have metal claws. His natural power is healing, and he has bone claws. What what part of that do you not buy? He does have bone claws, and when he
3: lost the metal claws in the comic books, the bone was somehow stronger because it had spent decades hardening under the adamantium.
0: The rules Sometimes. Other times it wasn't that strong.
3: Exactly. That's another one of my issues. These rules are in total flux depending on which group of writers wrote that particular set of issues. Like, sometimes Hulk can survive having a neutron bomb dropped on him. What's the point? What's the point? You if if the, if you're at that point, you didn't even need the story. You could have had two panels that just said Hulk won.
0: Yeah. Like, I
3: mean, come on.
0: Uh I I I am very forgiving with comics in a way that I don't think Steve is, but well, you I, know what? It just goes to show the quality of the movie we're talking about today, doesn't
3: it? <laughs> well, yeah, look, I, I it, and I have not defended this as any fine filmmaking. I just think it's fun. <laughs>
0: All right, let's get back on track. I I do love tangents, I do. But I want to talk about the Hug the World dance because it reminds me of a Michael Jackson song. It
3: does, and this is another one of those parts that I like cuz it's this group of vapid idiot cheerleader girls trying to come up with a prom in 1992 and this is absolutely the kind of shit they would have drum up drummed up with I think the idea of the the pig and the hug the world prom is hilarious.
0: It's like one of those like pageant competitions where it's like what would you do if you could have one wish and it's like World peace, you yes. know, like in Miss Congeniality, it's like that. Right, that's the kind of answer these girls would give, you know, I'd hug the world. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and what about the ozone layer? Well, yeah, we need to get rid of that. Dude, but that's another <laughs> that's one. That's funny, actually. It
3: goes back to your comment earlier about how the woke thing's not really new. Right. And it's like, mm-hmm. yo, global warming, this is 1992. We were talking, it was being
0: talked about. 30 fucking years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this was a topic of discussion 30 years ago. Right. Especially when it comes to, like, green options and, like, making sure, like, the planet doesn't expire before it should. I mean, and it will, but whatever. Like, these kind of things, like, I don't know, the environment are not new topics of discussion.
3: No, no. And it's so weird for people. Like, this came out of nowhere. It's like, no, it really didn't.
0: (laughs) It really didn't. It just bothers you now. Yeah, yeah. Now, now you're, that you're seeing more of it, you're bothered. The news tells you that this bothers you. Therefore, before <laughs> yeah. it does.
2: Who's the real global warming? That's the real question.
3: Because you watched a Fox News story about a brown person who didn't get arrested. And now you're upset. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm
4: going to the dance. For well, what? In order to dance, drink punch, be with my friends, comprende? No, I don't comprende. I mean, here the world is under attack by legions of the undead. You're going to a mixer. It's not a mixer. It's a senior dance. It's important. You wouldn't understand. No, I wouldn't understand. I mean, I thought you wanted to kill vampires. I don't want to kill anybody, okay? And I don't want to talk about this anymore. What about Merrick? Is that what he'd want? Merrick's dead. Cheap shot. He's dead because of me. Because I couldn't lift a hand against Lothos. I'm in way over my head. Look life's a bitch, I'll give you that. But Buffy, you're the guy.
2: You are the chosen guy.
4: I'm the chosen one, and I choose to be shopping.
2: Buffy goes on a little short personal journey where suddenly she's just she's just over this vampire sling horseshit, you know. She just wants to be a normal normal girl, and then like five
0: minutes later, she's just really over this high school bullshit, you know, she just Well, she has her lowest point in the movie. And, you know, a lot of main characters that are a hero in some big uh, supernatural way will encounter this, right? Where things have all gone wrong for them. They're not sure if they should go on, but they pursue, they persist anyway. Well, and I also think that perhaps in a slightly underdeveloped way, but it actually
3: does kind of underline a development in her because she starts off telling Merrick that she just wants to go back to her high school life and then graduate and go to Europe and get married. But when she gets back to having the regular high school life, she realizes it's not actually satisfying. That, like, maybe I didn't want to be a Slayer, but this is also not so satisfying. There's even that moment where she has the conversation with the other the other friends where she basically tells... When you tells,
2: say it like that, Steve, how do you not want to be a Slayer? <laughs> right? She uh, basically tells the others they're idiots,
3: you know? And they're like, oh, they're you friends. think we're stupid? Yeah. You know? So, like, I'm not saying it's perfect. I think it is underdeveloped. They could have done more but I just, I do think that at least it was an attempt to say like she's she's growing.
2: The arc takes like three minutes of screen time.
3: Yeah, that is the problem. Have no argument there. That is the problem. But I mean again, going back to what I've said a few times already, 80 minute movie that didn't need to be a whole lot longer but instead of being an hour, an hour and 25, if they said it's an hour and 40 or an hour and 45 and they some of these little things, that could have been better for them if they'd done it well.
0: Yeah, there could have been some room for improvement, I think. Yeah. But, you know, at least it's not this for two and a half hours. Yeah, I was exactly. Very glad at that. Right. But the yeah. dance has a lot going on because Buffy's boyfriend is now with her friend. You know, her kind of like social circle is. Um, it, it, they're kind of excluding her, right? Yeah, it's collapsing because she's not really interested anymore. But none of that shit matters because there's a fucking vamp attack at the high school dance, Steve.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of one of those moments we discussed earlier that I like, where that Hillary Swank character just invites them to come in because they're seniors.
0: Yeah. Um, she invites in, like, the guy with the most 90s haircut. He, like, looks at the camera and then turns to her.
1: Right.
3: You know? Um, but, yeah, so they, they come to invade the dance and, uh, and try to take it over and kill all the students for themselves.
0: What do you think of her dress?
3: I I mean, it's definitely another one of those 92 touches, but I uh, I very, 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 very like Christy Swanson in that dress. I like Christy Swanson in that dress quite a lot.
0: <laughs> Why?
3: Um, could you name two reasons? <laughs> oh, man, I could come up with more than two. There's two of them sitting right next to each other. Uh, um, no, I mean, look, I, I I sound like a mad, crazy misogynist in these podcasts, but honestly, like I, I really... Like at, at nine especially, I find her doing one of the most beautiful woman in the world. I had a huge crush on her. Like a serious, not like ooh sexy time and then toss her type thing. Like I really I had fantasies <laughs> I about,
0: wanted to court her I properly. Did.
3: <laughs> I had fantasies about fucking marrying Christy Swans when I was ten years old. I'm no bullshit. It's embarrassing as that is to admit. Like she was one of those women ten year old means like I'd run off with her. I'd leave my mother, you know, I like
0: Would you say m'lady to her?
3: No, thank God I was never that bad. <laughs> I was never the tip your fedora type. I probably would... Yes, like, my lady. I mean, and I'm not going to lie, I probably would have embarrassed myself in other ways. It just wasn't that Sexually, way. you mean? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> 10 especially. If I mean, look, like, yeah, let's be honest. You put 10-year-old me in a room with naked Christy Swanson, I would have come my pants and ran away. I wouldn't have known what to do with myself. No, you're, like,
0: you're, you're not supposed to. You're not
3: supposed to. You're 10. If you show me a 10-year-old who's that good in bed, I'm like, this kid's been touched badly, Wrong. bad stuff. Ugh, no. Anyway...
0: Yeah. Let's not make it too hard for me yeah. editing here
3: Yeah, yeah, you know what, some of this probably going to have to get trimmed
2: So
0: let's go back to talking about the movie
2: <laughs> Luke Perry shows up in the finest of black leathers
0: Yeah, dude Isn't he cool with that leather jacket, Josh? Yeah
1: Dude,
0: he
2: shaved his goddamn soul patch Did anybody, anybody catch oh. that? Yeah. That's how we know he's less
3: grown But the greaser thing keeps coming back I know people doing the greaser thing now that, 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 that For some reason that one won't go away And the rockabilly music that goes along with it a cool style. It's not an uncool style. If you can pull it off, if you're the type of person who can
2: pull it off, it's not uncool.
0: Josh, why does Luke Perry toss his leather jacket to her?
2: Because vampires show up out of nowhere and invade the... It's not a prom, but what the school dance or whatever the fuck, the global warming dance. Now, there's a great uh-huh. moment, though, where uh, like some random red shirt runs in And he's, like, bleeding from the neck. And he's like, you you guys aren't going to believe me. (laughs) There
0: are vampires out there. That's, like, the most blood you see the whole movie. Right.
2: Can
3: you think of a 90s action movie where the protagonist doesn't wear a leather jacket at some point? I mean, because I don't think I can.
0: Three ninjas. Okay, well, maybe three ninjas. (laughs) But the villain, I think, one of the... uh, Henchman wears it like There you go. Decade. I
3: mean, look, it, it, up through, the, it, until the end of the decade, there was an unspoken mandate that somebody in this movie is wearing a lot of jackets. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm
2: wearing one right now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I still have one that was really expensive that I bought in the early 2000s and they were still fashionable and it hasn't come out of my closet in 15 years because now I'm too embarrassed to wear it.
0: I have one. I like it. I wear it out really? sometimes. Yeah.
3: Maybe I'll start wearing mine again.
2: Do you wear it when you uh, walk away from explosions in slow motion? Yes, exactly. while
3: I'm putting on sunglasses.
0: Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Steve, Buffy faces off against the two lead villains. First, you got to fight the mini boss, and then you got to go to the boss. How does that go?
3: Yeah, I like this part. She fights Pee Wee, and it's not really a fight. You know, she mostly stabs him, but he makes it funny for her, as he usually does, and then he puts on a little bit of a death show, which is really amusing. He improvised it, and then... Um,
0: the death show. So, like... You're talking about the scene when the peewee vampire gets the stake through the heart and he doesn't just fall down dead. You're gonna wish you died.
5: Ooh, ah, ow, ooh, ooh, ah, ah. ah.
3: Anyway, yes, he does one of these cliche things. It's kind of a cliche thing anyway. With the you know the long death rows that take forever, but it's obviously meant to be funny. Pee wee is hamming it up.
0: That's what I mean though about like this movie not really diving into full parody, but like it, it kind of wants you to buy in some of that comedy at times, yeah. even though it's not really that. And I did think that was kind of. A, a neat bit. Like, I wasn't laughing out loud, but, like, I thought it was humorous to some degree. Yeah, I laughed at it. I find his bit funny.
2: It gets me every time.
0: Yeah. But it's, like, the movie it doesn't have me sold to that mental state throughout the whole uh, ride. So I'm not really, like, understanding that, like, this is the kind of humor that this movie gives. Because see, that seems out of place. That seems like that would be in Scary Movie. But nothing else in this movie seems like it would be in Scary Movie.
3: I see what you mean. Like... I definitely think that it's the most extreme example and that he camped it up extra. But for me, I did feel like it was the tone, but amped up to 11. Like, it didn't seem disconnected to me, but it did seem more so. I don't know. I liked it. It made me, made me laugh. I think Josh should it made him laugh, too. And then if there're anyone that watches, if you haven't seen it, when they get to the credits, they actually go through it, more of it, for a minute or two. Yeah. It keeps but going, right? It keeps going, which I think it's kind of amusing. I'm convinced he's not dead. Yeah, it's still I, happening. I think if they made a sequel, <laughs> they would have found some way to bring him back. But, but no, I also see what you're you're saying, Corey. And that is one of my consistent shortcomings of this movie. Is like it's just, it's good in a lot of ways for me, and I like it, and I find it amusing. It's just there's these moments where like yeah, you, you fell short or you overdid it just a little bit, or it could have been just a little bit more of this. And yeah, I don't know. But I like.
2: I, I found the death scene funny. Did Principal Steven Root writing detention slips to dead vampire kids uh, work for you, Corey? That one worked for me. I like it. I like
3: Steven Root's principal. You know, I like the scene where he's trying to explain that he's cool because he did acid once at a Doobie Brothers concert. Like, that. he's another one of those 90s cliche kind of school staff people. Plus, he's Bill Dotrieve. and Milton. How can you not like that? <laughs> he's phenomenal in Barry. He is. He is. He's really good. He's actually find him really good and everything. He was good in this. I think he played that part perfectly. I don't think you really could have asked him to play that part any differently than he did.
2: You want to dance? One.
4: We want her! We want Buffy! Send her
3: out! All will come in! <laughs> hey, I have detention here! And I'm not afraid to use them!
2: <laughs> Just as a side note, Buffy with the leather jacket and the and the. I keep wanting to call it a prom dress But whatever The dress and the leather jacket look It's mishmash, clash, whatever Of those two aesthetics It really works for me in this movie Yeah
0: Yeah, I mean I think there's There's some good ups and downs With the costume design in this movie Like sometimes the costumes are pretty fucking cool And I agree I like the way that looks It serves no purpose in the story But they sell it as if it does in the story When he tosses it to her but outside of that, I think it looks cool. Some of the costumes look pretty fucking dumb, but part of that is what Steve said, where it's like a product of its time.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to disagree. They're not all great, but I also do think some of them were just choices because that was the aesthetic of that moment. And uh, any movie, good movie, bad movie, this movie, that movie, new, old, whatever, I think you've got to be fair enough in, in picking that stuff out to say, well, you know, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't out of place in that. Instant.
4: It's too late.
5: You and I are one.
4: <gasps> one what? Cute couple? I don't think so.
5: You and I. Look at me. You and I are joined.
4: We're joined? Please.
5: You stupid little bitch. How are you gonna <gasps> stop I am life beyond death. And you are just like the other girls.
4: Maybe I'll surprise you.
5: This is your defense. Please. Your puny face?
4: No. My keen fashion sense.
2: (gasps) Lothos tries to seduce her, but... She just tells him to talk to the hand and he ain't all that in a bag of potato chips and mm-hmm. bop it, pull it. Uh, what are some other 90s phrases? Keep going. Come on. Skip it.
0: <laughs> Crossfire. He, he'll Cross get caught fire. up in it.
3: Crossfire is like my favorite board game in history In terms of like trivia facts Because I love the fact that the pieces started off being metal And they had to discontinue that version And make them in plastic Because kids were hurting each other with the metal parts And They like, got caught up in it bro They did They.
1: Crossfire were <laughs> You'll get caught up in it
2: hey, She crossfires his ass so hard he, he literally catches on fire
1: Right. Yeah that's
0: a great effect He combusts <laughs> It leads to a showdown, Steve. There's a showdown with Buffy and Lothos here, who's Rutger Hauer. He's the main vampire. You know, he's kind of been the one in charge the whole time. He
3: wants more life.
0: He (laughs) breaks out a katana. Now, Josh, what does katana mean?
5: What does katana mean? It means Japanese sword.
2: I believe if... If I'm not mistaken, I looked this up the other day. I believe it means Japanese sword. I'm sorry, that's incorrect.
0: Oh, <laughs> shit. I'm just kidding. The katana is
3: a 36-piece a sushi platter.
0: Yes. <laughs> they have a
2: duel very clearly choreographed by the likes of Ray Park.
3: yeah it looks like a master jedi somehow getting himself cut in half inside of two minutes
0: yeah step aside darth maul this is a fight for the ages yeah make sure
3: that your student is the one who wins because somehow he's better than you he's the chosen one
1: (laughs) he's actually the chosen one (laughs) Uh,
3: fucking i mean i appreciate they brought him back in some of the extended universe stuff but what a fucking tease man the, that character, he's got an, almost no dialogue. He's, he's on screen for like nine minutes, the whole movie. There's one moment in a hologram where he's standing behind Palpatine. Then there's a moment where he's on the speeder. And then there's the fight between him and Obi-Wan and qui I swear to God, he's in the whole movie for less than 15 minutes. It's such a tease.
0: That dude's face was on Everything Every piece of marketing material for right. The Phantom Menace.
3: I thought he was going to be Vader for that movie. I didn't think he was going to replace Vader, but I figured this dude's going to be in the whole movie.
0: Some, so some people that like are younger, they don't understand this aspect of the argument. They say, well, Darth Maul shows up in The Clone Wars. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the motherfucking Phantom Menace.
2: Thank
1: you.
0: <laughs> and he hadn't been in anything else yet. Like They sold him like he was going to be... The villain. Yes. Yeah. Of I, the f- I, fucking series.
2: Well, that goes to show you they did not planned that shit through because if they had they obviously would have kept him around
3: no they didn't and and you watch the behind the scenes god i always talk about this but lucas didn't know what he was doing it was obvious when they were interviewing him when he was sitting down to write the script that he had no idea where he was going to go with it he obviously like by his own admission had no ideas it became obvious during production that he came to realize the ideas he had were no good there's that Infamous moment we've talked about a million times, where he and McCullum and the other people were sitting in the screening room at Lucasfilm, and everyone's got a frown on their face. And that was followed by two days worth of meetings, where even Lucas had to admit that he'd fucked the pooch and he couldn't fix it without restarting the whole movie because other things depended on the things that he'd screwed up.
2: And it's like, what a shit show, God. But Jar Jar is the key to all of this. That's the most important part. Because he's a funnier character than we've ever had. And if we can get him working.
3: And like, that's one thing I don't understand about the people defending the movie. Like, how often do you hear about a main actor telling people, telling audiences openly, he came to regret so deeply the part that he played that he considered killing himself over the backlash? I'm not saying that's a right situation. He probably should not have been pushed that far. But the fact that the guy who played Jar Jar thought about committing suicide after the fact says something about that character's actual legacy.
2: <laughs> I honestly I think they should bring Jar Jar back.
3: As a Sith Lord, and he goes ape shit and just starts beheading people.
2: No, I'm I'm thinking Jar Jar the drunk with a beard. <laughs> he just everybody throws rocks at him. The drunken master.
1: <laughs>
0: I'll take that too. Drunken he Grunk. already is like the drunken master in the uh in the Gungan Grand Army. You remember he's like slipping and yeah, he's like he like falls and then like that kills someone and then he like accidentally like lands right. on a thing and that kills someone, it's like he's already the drunken master. Yes. Dude,
2: that's classic Star Wars cinema right there. Yeah. When Jar Jar steps in the poo. When you could win a war through a series of slapstick comedy. Right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. And I mean, all that prep work by Palpatine, he couldn't even take Naboo. Like... Okay, so just as a <laughs> side note,
2: this is my favorite George Lucas story of all time. So uh, around the time Gangs of New York is being made, Lucas visits the set, and he's talking to Marty Scorsese. And he looks at this big elaborate set where they had, you know... Made all this shit to look like early, you know, ni- 1800, 1900 uh, New York. Eddie, he, yeah, he just tells him, beautiful side." you know, you know, you can b- make all this in a computer, right?
3: It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, you can tell watching those movies they were filmed in front of a green screen. It's the worst part.
2: Wait, you can? Right.
3: <laughs> I mean, you look at the OT. You're talking about a movie from the 70s when you're talking about four. It's a movie from the 70s. And it it looks real because you shot it in real places. Tatooine is Africa. I mean, there's some blue screen stuff in there,
2: but like... No, but you don't want to actually like work. You don't want to get up from your chair. You want to be comfortable. You want to be cool in your studio and just just have the actor say the line against the screen.
3: I don't get why. I mean, you, you invented something that so many people love and it's so hugely successful. And then when you get around to doing the next chapter of it... You just treat it like this thing that like, oh, I'm going to, I guess I'm going to do another one of these. Here's a thing that some people want.
2: Or well, There's a quote by him during the production of episode one where he says, we're never going to be Titanic because Titanic came out at the time. We're never going to be Titanic. Nobody can. That, my friend, is the point
0: of episode one.
3: Well, I, and unfortunately for him, he was wrong again. James Cameron just made Avatar and did it all over again.
0: Only James Cameron can beat Titanic. James
3: Cameron has broken the gross box office earning record, I think, three separate times. That's insane. That is What a fucking stat. You can say whatever you want. The first Avatar is not even a very good movie. Doesn't matter. Doesn't fucking matter. Doesn't matter. That guy can walk out with his three-foot dick and say, <laughs> I have broken the box office <laughs>
0: record three
3: times. Times. Three times.
0: <laughs> One foot for every time he broke it.
3: Right? I broke it myself and then broke it again.
2: Like
0: Take that me. Right? Which is why it's mostly forgiven
2: that he personally murdered the the, the cast of aliens and then went into underwater <laughs> hiding for like the next two decades.
0: See, it comes back God. around. See, I'm glad we make these anecdotes. Right. Yeah, we're <laughs> way off, way off. We're like three topics off where we started,
3: right? But yeah. Goddamn. Right. Anyway.
0: So, the confrontation that Buffy has with Lothos, she does kill him in a pretty anticlimactic way, I think. You know, he's got the sword. She's got the flagpole. Eventually, she gets a stake and just kind of sticks him. There's not a lot to it.
2: I love when he's impaled, though. He's just like, okay, now I'm really pissed off. <laughs> and then she just, like kills him harder that's it that's kinda cute yeah I like
3: that cause otherwise you get the other version of that cliche where he comes back to life four times before he's actually
0: dead I am glad they didn't do that but only because at this point I was like just wrap this shit up <laughs> like just get me to the fucking end of this and of <laughs> course it has to end with the uh, romantic moment with Pike yeah you know? but at
3: least it doesn't last too long It's mostly just like 30 seconds of it and they ride off together. It's another thing I kind of appreciate is they don't really belabor the end of this movie. It's kind of like it's over.
0: The old prostitute rationale. (laughs) (laughs) At least it doesn't last too long. Right.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, they cap it off. They cap it off there. And it's not a huge climax, but, you know, you get what you kind of expected, I think.
0: On the back of a Harley driving into the sunrise. Not the sunset in this case, but... Whatever, that's the end of this movie. It's pretty paint-by-numbers in terms of, like, the ending moment, right? Like, oh, yeah. I'm with the person I, I love now, that I discovered that I loved through the course of this movie, and let's go right off now.
3: Right, well, and I mean, that's, look, even, you know, Dust Till Dawn, whatever, literally, because that's the name, blah, blah, blah. But, like, the, you know, it's kind of, that's kind of how you end a lot of these movies, is the ride off But even if there's no love story, it's just the, the good guys ride off
0: into the sunrise. I like I do like the matte painting though at the end of Dust Till Dawn. Yeah, it a zoom, good one. zoom zooms out and yeah. it's like, well, this was a fucking pyramid. <gasps> now we're gonna get some sick ass sequels. God, I wish.
3: If, if, well, actually, they did, and the sequels weren't really very good. Right. I, I wish they'd gotten one more out, like that was at that level for the first one. But yeah,
0: Buffy. Buffy. We're talking about Buffy. We're Buffy. I swear to God, we are. All right. Yeah.
3: Look, I've, this podcast has already gone on like an hour longer than I thought it would. So yeah, let's. Yeah.
0: We're All right. Good. <laughs> Steve any final thoughts About Buffy the Vampire Slayer Cole in the movie
3: No I think I've kind of laid it out Short of an actual rating Like I, I generally like it I think there's some really funny dialogue in it I think there are some really solid jokes in it I don't think it's perfect I do think it's rough around the edges But uh, we'll get to the final
0: ratings momentarily Josh do you have any final thoughts Before we go into ratings
2: If a cupcake falls from a tree, how far away will it be from down?
0: (laughs) Good point, Josh. Thank you for that. (laughs) On that same topic, let's take it into ratings. Josh, on any rating scale you want, what are you going to give Buffy the Vampire Slayer?
2: So uh, I I get this movie has some flaws. I'm going to give it eight. Wee's refusing to die out of 10 like <laughs> i understand it's got flaws but it's light-hearted goofy fun yeah i i really like the kind of gothic aesthetic and how silly everything is i just something about this mishmash works uh, that somehow doesn't work for something like the show
0: Another pot shot taken at the show. (laughs) Just to throw in my two cents, I'm not overly familiar with the Buffy the Vampire Slayer show. I have seen fragmented bits of episodes as it was channel surfing back in the day. And I remember thinking, this seems cool. Maybe I should start it one day. But I probably never will. There's just always too much TV to watch. I'm not against it right off the bat like you guys are. But I never really gave it a fair shake. I'm going to go next. I'm going to give this movie... Three out of ten.
3: Three? Come on, man. Vampires
0: wielding a katana. Ugh. Oh, I didn't expect you to love it, but I know that's unfair. I don't like this movie at all, Steve. I do not like this movie. I hope to never watch it again. Wow. This movie is not without any merit, though. It is a three out of ten. It's not a one out of ten. It's not Theodore or fucking Rex, you know? Oh, God, no. Uh, there's some things in this movie that are, like, obviously... Components that work for something, and I think that is the reason we got a show. Right? There's some bones here. I think the story itself of like this girl, typical teenage high school girl in Southern California, realizing that she has to now enter into this world of demons or vampires and she has to like fight the forces of evil and kind of like turns her life upside down that's kind of a cool premise. But I don't think this movie is particularly good in its action. I don't think it's particularly scary. I don't know if it's ever supposed to be. It's not. And I don't think it's ever particularly funny outside of one or two moments. So on what level is this movie supposed to work for me, right? Like I said, the bones are okay, but there are so much meaningless interactions in this movie, especially in the first act, where they're supposedly setting up characters, but they're not really giving them any character growth. It's just meaningless interactions and then it goes to bad action scenes and then it goes to at the end which is mostly just chaos and that's really where the movie thrives i think and when when it just is like okay let's be a little bit more chaotic let's be a little bit loose about the jokes that's really when it's at its best and that doesn't come till the end this movie i mostly hate it steve you're up next
3: so as is often the case Corey gives a wrong review uh yeah (laughs) uh i mean look it's definitely not perfect. It's not even the best of the goofball vampire movies. I mean, Near Dark is better. There are several that are better. Monster Squad's probably better. It's imperfect. It's half-baked. It's underdeveloped. It's rough around the edges. But I'm going to disagree with Corey. I think there's quite a bit of this movie that's genuinely funny. I think a lot of the jokes are are really very funny, especially if you're paying enough attention to catch them, which isn't a jab. I don't mean that that comments is a jab. I just mean you really kind of have to be... Listening for them to be there, but yeah, Corey, I, I,
2: you're not paying attention enough.
3: Um, I, I don't I don't really understand the action sex sequence criticism quite to that degree. It's not great, but it it wasn't supposed to be. Then nobody marketed this as a diehard movie. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, yeah. I, I I for me, my final rating, my final rating. I'm gonna rate this on a scale of how, how many robotic replicant vampires uh I like. I'm I'm gonna be closer to to Josh. I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it a seven. I think there's a lot more movies from this era and from every era aimed at this audience that are worse than this is than there are movies aimed at this audience that are better. I think it's kind of clever and genuinely really amusing, even if very flawed. And it, it's not the best movie of its group, but it's definitely not the worst. And I find it a hell of a lot more entertaining than that stiff, ridiculous television show. But in any case, I think that's pretty much it.
0: It's no island of Doctor Moreau quality.
3: No, no. I mean, it didn't come off being that much of a mess. It did one thing. I'll admit, it did one thing. I think it did. Sure, Moreau is that both films felt like they were made by people who didn't really know what to do with the material they had. Yeah,
0: that's a good point. That kind of <clears throat> that kind of seeps through.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I will admit that I I I think that when the producers had the idea to take this movie from Whedon in a different direction, that idea was right. But I don't think they had a clear mental line on how to do it and I will concede I think what we ended up with is not a fully baked version of that and it, it could have it, it does leave something to be desired the acting's a little stiff the action's not great uh you know so I'm not I don't want to make it sound like I totally disagree or that I think it's like some amazing but I I don't know I find it entertaining it's endearing enough for me that I'll, I'll go back to it again
2: I originally had it as a 7-2 but I I decided to retroactively give it another point for nostalgia purposes. Yeah, I mean,
3: look, I will also admit, in fairness to Corey as well, that, like, nostalgia plays a really big part for me. If I really, really enjoyed a movie as a kid and I still like watching it now, I'll, I'll give it additional credit even if I know it's not not a great movie. If I had never seen this movie as a kid and didn't have the nostalgia, I probably would have rated it a little bit lower. But even then, I don't know if
0: I'd go below five. Anyway, that's about it. Thank you very much. Josh, you make videos on YouTube. If people want to listen to you, could you tell them where they can find you and what it is that you do?
2: So, you can find me at ReviewDOOD or Review Inc. I, I make video content occasionally. I haven't in a while. I'm just I'm taking a bit of a break, but I have been focusing on making content for, for Big Dumb Movies, so if you want to check out some highlights and clips, feel free to do
0: so. Awesome. Thank you guys very much for joining us on this uh, entry point into the Halloween October horror season. I look forward to the stuff that we're going to continue to do. If you, the listener want to write in, you can email us at bigdumbmovie at gmail.com. Our Instagram is bigdumbmoviepodcast. DM me, make a movie request. Maybe we'll do it. Maybe we won't. Can't make any guarantees, but I do like interacting with people. And I really like your feedback. If you listen to this podcast and you enjoy it. Leave a comment or a positive rating and written review on Apple Podcasts or even just a DM. Let me know what you guys like about it. Talk to me, engage. I, I want to hear from you guys a little bit more. So you I can leave out the dick pics. We don't need all of the dick pics. No, you can could, you could keep sending them. They automatically go to Josh.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. That's been a fun pod. Thank you so much, Steve, for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Josh, for being here. As always, we love you and good night.
3: You, you are you familiar with thomas lennon uh no thomas lennon if you ever watched the show was the like he he was the police captain it seemed like he was might be gay but wasn't on Reno 911 with the short shorts if you look Oh, yes. that dude.
2: Yes, that yeah. guy.
3: If you look up his resume wherever, you will probably discover that he's been in way more than you thought and also that he's contributed to the writing in way more than you thought and a lot of really really good stuff, like really good stuff.
2: Oh, yeah. I, yeah, he's like a like a pseudo ghostwriter. For shit, right? Yeah. And just like, Or a script doctor or some shit, right? Yeah, exactly. And his name's also
3: ended up in a lot of it, but a lot of the time they don't advertise that he was involved. So you don't, like, there's been a lot of stuff where it's like, oh shit, I didn't realize Thomas Lennon wrote some of the jokes for that. And he appears as a side character to a bunch of stuff. And real early on, he did a short, the whole thing is nine minutes long. It is not a big investment. And you'll notice a lot of faces you recognize. It's on YouTube for free. It's called The Waiters. But it's not actually about like people who work at a restaurant. It's a, it's a comedic short. It just I think it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Thomas Lennon co wrote it, and I, for somehow I feel like your sense of humor would really line up with it. So if you get a chance to spend nine minutes on it at some point, let me know what you thought.
2: Oh, dude, I'm definitely gonna have to check that out. So. <laughs> He's involved in uh, a movie I get a lot of shit for, but I can't... I make no apologies for it. I love it. Balls of Fury. Oh, yeah. I always forget that that movie exists
3: until somebody brings it yeah. up. That's the one Walken's in, right? Yes. You know what? I'm watching a show on Amazon right now with Walken and I just... The Outlaws. It's There's two seasons of it. Second season's from this year. I just started watching it this week. Each episode's an hour. It's a bit of an investment, but Walken's good on it. It's entertaining.
2: How old is Walken? He's still working?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, he's got to be... My my mother is 71, and Walken's got to be at least her age, so early 70s.
0: Dan Fogler is the lead in Balls of Fury. Yeah. I fucking love that, dude. All right. And it all stems from the movie Fanboys. You ever Mm. see Fanboys, Steve?
3: That's another one I tend to kind of forget about until somebody brings it up. Yeah.
0: The thing about Fanboys is... It was made at the exact right time, time Star Wars fans needed that. Yes, because like it was like post prequel era. Right, and I it, want to make sure I'm thinking
3: of the right one. That's the one with Justin Long, where one of the friends is dying, and they want to see episode. Justin one. Justin Long right. is no not involved in any way whatsoever. It wasn't Justin Long, but is that the one where one of them's dying, and they want to get to episode one? Yeah, Justin Long was it in that movie? No, this is not my at bad all. memory. All right, I, I, I'm not. I'm not arguing with you. It just really, I thought I remembered him being in it.
2: You're thinking of Jeepers Creepers.
3: You're
0: thinking of Ira. Um, whatever his name is. Yeah, yeah you must be right. Super Jewish name guy.
3: Yeah. It, it's it's just, it's been like 10 years since I actually watched it, so my memory of who's in it's not, not oh, great. Oh, not
0: Ira. His name's Jay Berschel. <laughs> you know yeah, what? Jay, Jay Bershall,
3: that's who I'm thinking of. You are 100% right. I just, for some reason, my brain swapped one of them for the other. 100%.
0: But that movie came out at a time when I, I like to call it like the. Like the second dark, uh, dark era or like um, dark ages of Star Wars fandom because after the originals, right, it was kind of like the Star Wars dark ages, somewhat. And then after the prequels, it was like Star Wars had like died, like it it had nosedived because that
2: to me is the dark ages.
0: Yeah, because I mean, Star Wars fandom was basically like kaput at that point for a while. (laughs) Like the magic of Star Wars of the original trilogy, it still existed, but it was like far removed from, like, the recent memories people had of, like, Star Wars. What is Star Wars? Oh, it's those movies that just came out a couple years ago.
3: I don't mean to argue your point, because that's legitimate. We're going to argue a lot today, I think. But,
0: well, you're probably, but uh,
3: <laughs> I, that, I always kind of felt the opposite. I mean, I agree with you in part, but when I look back now, I actually actively wish we could go back to that. Because the existence of the prequels and the sequels and the derision it's caused and the arguing that those movies have caused and what they've done in terms of confusing the Star Wars universe, I would rather just go back to before they existed. Like, the the PJE I, I, the uh, uh, pre-Jar-Jar universe, yeah. you know, pre-Jar-Jar era, like...
0: No, I it mean, probably wasn't clear. I meant, like, after, after 2004... Is the period I'm talking about.
3: Oh, okay. Because ta- Star ta- Wars
0: had a bad taste in people's mouth because of the prequel.
3: Oh, okay. I misunderstood, and I agree with you. So I,
0: thought I didn't we, speak clearly. I'm still tired. I thought we were talking about the 16 years ish
3: between. Um, 6 and 1.
0: That was kind of like the first period, but that was like just like a period of like mystery. It was like is there going to be more? When is it going to happen? Were... That
2: was j- that was the Star Wars depression.
0: Well, see, but that's where I'm going to disagree a little because
3: that's for me where the the expanded universe blew the fuck up. Like you're right, they weren't doing any mainstream but like there must have been 25 Star Wars themes, Lucas Lucas games, LucasArts games, the original uh, Rogue Squadron, X-Wing, Shadows of the
0: Empire. Shadows Shadows of the the Empire was beyond a game
3: though. it was I mean and you're right but that's part of my point of Shadows of the Empire was a real plug-in story it was the Rogue One of that era there was a book to tie in a real book to tie and they yeah. almost made a movie out of it
0: well they, they, there was like a connective thread of the whole storyline of Shadows of the Empire yeah. and part of it was the game yes so, and, it was like a book a game and a comic yeah and, and that's how you get the full story and
3: that's the part that I'm getting at like I don't disagree with you as far as like the mainstream just films go but like there was so much of that expanded and you figures in the card game that unfortunately the card game didn't
0: catch on but none you know, of them do bro
3: none of pokemon them
0: is like the only one that stayed it's alive true. for as long right pokemon and magic somehow yeah um, magic is a good one yeah but, but uh this but, fucking every every company tries to do their own card game plus oh my god
3: the star wars arcade games there were it, there were three three or four different arcade but there was there was star wars trilogy and which was I think the last one. There was the Pod Racer arcade game, which was way better than the N sixty four game. Way it, it, better. You had the big pod you sat in, you know that one. Yeah. And then the trilogy People that
0: remember the Pod Racing game, I think they might be conflating the two, because that N sixty four game is like it's like fine to me at yeah. best. But that the arcade cabinet is fucking dope. And the Star
3: Wars trilogy where the first mission is the one on Hoth, and then you go to the forest with the speeders and like that game was incredible. So For me, like, I loved that era, because there was just, there was so much other stuff going on, and then all the excitement about Episode One, and then when he actually delivered Episode One, I'm like, I kind of wish he just hadn't made this.
2: (laughs) I noticed you didn't mention Star Wars Masters of Terras Kassi. I, dude,
3: I don't bring it up, because almost nobody knows what the fuck I'm talking about. I try to tell people about a PS1 Star Wars fighting game, and one person straight up was like, that game doesn't exist. Yeah. Like he this oh, is one of,
2: It does. Right?
3: And this is one of those guys who this head up his ass who's like I'm a Star Wars lore expert and I would know what I'm talking about when I brought up the game, he's like, That's there's no such game. It doesn't exist.
0: He has Jar Jar Binks tattooed on his back. Right. <laughs> which which brings me back to fanboys. Oh yeah, yeah. So fanboys oh. came out at a time when like being a Star Wars fan was like not as cool as it is now. It wasn't a fashionable no. thing Because this movie came out I think in two thousand seven. So, it was at a time when it was like kind of goofy to like Star Wars. Whatever, I still did, All right? Of course. But it definitely wasn't as cool as it is now. It's kind of it kind of reflected actually like middle school to me, like when when it wasn't cool to like Star Wars. Then
2: the Knights of the Old Republic games fueled my fandom during that era.
1: Oh yes, those were good.
0: Yeah, there was. There's always been great Star Wars games, especially those ones. And anyway, Dan Fogler in Fanboys is. Fucking hilarious to me. I mean, there's there's a really good cast in there. Yeah, one of the guys is uh, his name's Sam Harrington. He yeah. was the kid in Jungle to Jungle with Tim Allen. He's been in a bunch of stuff. What else is he? Was he in a Terminator movie? Not that I know of, but he was Jimmy Olsen. Okay, then maybe that's what I'm thinking of. In uh, the Superman, the Brandon Ralph Superman.
2: Yeah. Okay. Oh
0: yeah, I, I yeah,
2: I know who you're talking about now. He's in Detroit Rock City.
3: That's probably what I'm thinking of. That's such a fun movie. God damn it. Every time I think about that movie in American History X and Pecker, it makes me feel extra bad about what happened to Eddie for a long.
0: People have asked us to do that movie. Someone asked us one time. Have you All ever right. heard of Brain Scan?
3: I will Right? Oh god, brain scan that. I mean that that was I had to I think twist Corey's arm a little to get to that one. I of course it's one of my favorites. But. I'm
1: glad you did though. Yeah, me too. Unlike <laughs> this movie. Right. <laughs> hey, boys, come though. on.
3: And it's funny, alright. I was not expecting you to love this movie, but I also was not expecting you to be hard negative about it, so we'll have to talk.
0: Well, it doesn't have Trickster. If Trickster showed up in this movie, I mean I guess Paul Rubens is like this movie's trickster. Yeah, I mean, now, that I'm, now that I'm saying that. <laughs> I mean God,
3: Paul Rubens is like one of the big reasons to watch this movie. He's great. He's a great actor. Like,
2: Are my ears deceiving me, Corey? You were not you were not into the vampire slayer?
3: Well, it's goofy. Even I love this movie, and even all admit it's goofy. The fact that it's goofy is part of what I like about it. But it works I like. I me.
0: love Steve when like there's, <laughs> when there's something when you're willing to like throw a bone and the negative at something, you do it like as lightly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> it's goofy. I'll give it that, but like, <laughs> and he says that within two seconds. It's goofy. I'll give it that, but
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe Frankenheimer's. A little bit mean. Maybe just a slightly... Sli- he's a little bit rude. See, but he's not, <laughs> though. It was just that group of people.
3: If I'd been put in that group with that group of people, I would have done way more than yell at him. I would have been throwing shit. I would have set the set on fire. <laughs> I would have told Brando to That's... eat shit and die or learn his fucking lines, like... He points the laser pointer at your dick. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Dude, I mean, in fact, um, you know, I should have brought it up when we were doing the the podcast, but... Uh, Go back to the documentaries about Apocalypse Now and listen to what Scorsese said about working with Brando. What do you say? I don't know that one. Brando was supposed to have read the Joseph Conrad book, Into the Hearts of Darkness, before the film because that's what the movie was based on. Sure. He refused to read it. He told them he was going to and then showed up the first day of, of shooting and said, I didn't bother to read it and I'm not going to. That I remember um, from the pod. Scorsese had to have somebody sit with him and read it to him every day on the set because it's the only way he would allow it to even get into his head. And then he refused to even really think about it when he was de- developing the part. He also, as per usual, this is a consistent every single person who worked with him going back to Streetcar Named Desire, I've heard say – he he'd never learned his lines, ever, ever learned his lines. Apocalypse Now, he did not learn his lines. Miro, he didn't learn his lines. He did another movie with De Niro and Edward Norton, I think was called The Heist. And they had to do the same thing with him there that they did on Miro. They put a headset in his ear and yeah. somebody had to read the lines ahead because he wouldn't learn his lines. We talked
0: about that. But like, how does one become known as the greatest actor if that's the way they work? Like, how does that slip into place? Like, how is that possible? Well, is he, does, is it earned his greatest actor Because title? the
2: bar back then, uh, I'm going to get a lot of shit for this. No, I the think I'm agreeing The bar back with you. then used to be very low.
3: Yeah, I mean, the- Laurence Olivier was the greatest Shakespearean actor in the world at one point. He's just not.
0: I heard people say, <laughs> I, I heard someone once say on a podcast, like, acting, like, back in, like, the old days, like, in, like, the 50s and before. Right. It was, like, it was a white man. And he would talk very seriously like yes. this, and then he would get mad. Yes, and that is like oh my god, the greatest actor of all
3: time. There are a few, a few examples I can pick out where there was enough nuance in it that Peter O'Toole in some of his roles, Anthony Hopkins before a lot of people knew who he was in the sixties and seventies, you know, there's a lot. There are some, but yeah, I just I don't I think he was a good actor, but I don't think he ever deserved that particular sobriquet.
2: For the record, I'm still sitting on a fire Frankenheimer pond that'll. Make you guys chuckle for like two seconds. I mean, I but
3: you know, like it's, it's really interesting to me that if you look across the history of Frankenheimer's career, the – every single movie he worked on where they commented except for one. And every other instance, the people talked about him being an actor's director and loving working with him and wanting to work with him. Charlize Theron admitted during um, interviews after doing Reindeer Games that she knew the movie was going to be bad and wanted to do it anyway because it was an opportunity to work with him. And I refuse to believe that someone like Theron wouldn't have known if he was just the kind of director who screamed at people for no reason and, and didn't ever get any work done. So the one example where the actors after the fact are have all these terrible things to say about him is An incredibly troubled production that had been going the wrong direction since day one. And they happen to be actors like Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando who both have this history of, like, they don't learn their lines. They're difficult to work with. They burn people with cigarettes. They refuse to read the background material. They argue with you about the script. They want to turn their character into a dolphin person. Like... I, you know, I, like, I'm, again, i say the same thing I said when we did the podcast. It doesn't necessarily merit him really outright screaming at people. But at the same time, that's not the only story about a director doing it. I've heard stories about Spielberg yelling at people. I've heard stories about Ridley Scott yelling at people. I've heard stories about James Cameron yelling at people. In fact, James really, Cameron's
0: always yelling at people. Right?
3: You know, and, and Ridley <laughs> Scott's another perfect example. It's the crew on Blade Runner hated him. So much, they were showing up at one point wearing shirts that basically said Ridley Scott is a dictator. Like,
0: So I'll say this, Steve. So, like, Frankenheimer, he could be, like, totally cool, like, 99% of his working time. Right. But, like, if he treats people like shit on one movie, that, like, still counts. I'm not saying he lives his life that way. Right? I'm not saying he's this is the way he is 100% of the time. But it sounds like he reacted badly to other people who were also reacting badly. You know, like how people say, like, two wrongs don't make a right?
3: Yeah, yeah, and an eye for the eye makes the whole world blind. But it, the flip side of the coin is is what would, like, I mean, what was the alternative?
0: You know what, you're right, because I did like the way the movie came out. Well, well, no, but even,
3: <laughs> look, even Frankenheimer told people after the fact he didn't like the movie, he didn't get, he, he would specifically tell people, I didn't get hired to make that movie well. I got hired to get it made. I, like, Josh, who's the real animal?
2: Oh, I think, I think, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Society. I, like, yeah, fine,
3: two wrongs don't make a right, but, like, I'm not gonna hold him accountable as some kind of asshole, because he freaked out at people who put him in a, put in, put in that position, like.
0: Val Kilmer felt... Like he was in danger, Steve. You heard it out of his mouth.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> part of why I push back on this is because the, the, I, I don't frankly trust what came out of those actors' mouths. I don't trust Feruza Balk when she said she got her screamed in her face. I, I've heard people when talking at the volume I'm talking now, why are you screaming at me? You know, like, I don't trust her when she says it. I don't trust Val Kilmer's saying, I don't feel safe, especially when the recording, he had to back it up with nothing. He's damning evidence, though, Steve. He's damning evidence. Like, I don't, you know, like, you know, and I'm fine. Val Kilmer had kind of a funny joke. The flip side of that coin is Val Kilmer can show up on sets with his lines memorized as often as he wants, but it doesn't make him an actor, you know, like. Damn, Steve's uh,
0: fucking taking shots.
3: uh, You know, well, I, I think it's very, very, uh, very telling that I don't think there's almost anybody that worked with them that had much of anything positive to say about the experience after the fact. In fact, Joel Schumacher tried defending him once before they made Batman, saying they'd worked together before and it wasn't bad, and then after Batman, Schumacher basically said, I was wrong, I'll never work with him again.
0: I see how it is. Steve has taken a side. Well,
2: (laughs) (laughs) we'll get into it when we get around to Ronan, but I was... I was pretty lukewarm on the film, to be honest. So, like, between Island of Dr. Moreau, Reindeer Games, uh, and Ronin,
0: like. that, Those are the movies you've seen of Frankenheimer, you mean, right? It's
2: 0 for 3. It's over for 3 for me. Like, I don't think Frankenheimer's thrown out the bangers you think he is, Steve.
3: Well, okay. First of all, two of those three movies are admittedly bad. And I'm like, there's no argument with me on that. They're also considered that, like, two of the worst things you ever worked on. Ronan's kind of a subjective thing. I don't I didn't expect either of you would come back saying, Yeah, it's amazing. But uh you know, I think if you look back over the course of what he's done in total, and you consider how much better crafted at least Ronan is as a film than the other two, like the I, I think there's an easy accusation to run to where like Miro turned out to be a nightmare and Reindeer Games didn't turn out to be good so he must just not have been good but with Miro he inherited a disaster he had nothing much to do with except getting it finished and Reindeer Games, I don't know what happened with that I don't have any excuses for that aside from the point out that like, I, like I'm like i a huge fan of Tim Burton right? but some of what Tim Burton has directed is garbage, like I know how Corey feels about Burton's version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory like I love Ridley Scott as a filmmaker, but um, the uh, Alien prequels are, are not very oh. good. Yeah, exactly. Are you it yeah, a- exactly. <laughs> you know, I like Spielberg. I think is a great director, but 1941 is a really mediocre movie, and nobody seemed to like West Side Story. Like, so I, I think.
0: No, I think people did
1: like it. Well, I it just mean, it didn't I think, make money.
3: Yeah, I mean, some people liked it, but you know, I, I, I just think that like, if the metric is a great director can't have ever directed anything that there's any disagreement about. Or, or, like, a great director can't have ever directed anything that somebody didn't like. That Like, who's left? Like, seriously, who's left? Who can you name? James that, Cameron. You know, like, the Avatar movies. Like, Avatar's a technological breakthrough, but as as a movie, it got shat on. Like, narrative-wise, it got shat on. A lot of people just saw it as a an environmental mouthpiece. It doesn't I, matter.
0: Number if, 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 if you make the number one movie of all time in terms of revenue. Right. It doesn't matter what anyone says.
3: Well, I mean, I agree with you as far as the success metric is concerned. I'm just talking about, like, can you name a director who has never made a movie that was less than amazing?
2: So you're saying you're a fan of Frankenheimer's
0: 7-Up commercial? Did he make a 7-Up commercial? <laughs> oh, I did. didn't actually He know actually that. did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did.
3: But I'm a fan of the Manchurian Candidate and Grand Prix, and I, I like Ronan as a movie.
0: There's, I I thought about that a lot in my life. Like, who's the director that's like made nothing but bangers? And there was a time when I would say a certain director, and then like a certain movie comes out, and I'm like, no shit, he's lost the title. That's the problem. None of them can really keep it up. Like, who's the
2: real director? Yeah,
0: (laughs) right. You know, and I think that's the problem. We are, Josh. (laughs) It
3: doesn't matter how good they are. Really, occasionally (laughs) they're gonna pick a script that sounds better than it ends up being, or things get screwed up, or or, or it, it. I don't think there's a single director that that hasn't been involved with something that didn't come out well.